You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hey everyone, this episode of An Eternity of Basketball is part of the Globally Ballin Podcast Network, a subsidiary of the Globally Ballin Media Network. For this show and other shows like it, such as the Globally Ballin Podcast, as well as projects like it, such as original articles and video work, visit globallyballin.com now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe to it, as well as give it a 5-star rating and a review. We appreciate it. Now, to the show. Good morning, everybody here in the Philippines, and good evening to everybody in the United States and around the world as well. This is episode number three of what eternity of basketball and before we get this show going let's get these things out of the way of course we are part of the globally ballin network and uh, you can also check out an eternity of basketball via the globally ballin network on spotify and you can also check out the globally ballin podcast which is uh taking a show at the uh, a, a look at the surface level of uh, a surface level view of sports and opportunities around the world so an eternity of basketball on spotify you also have the globally balling podcast and cassie gormley our good friend from the volleyball community also has her own show it's called hang time with cassie g so we have everything covered from an eternity of basketball to the globally balling podcast to hang time with cassie g all a big part of the globally balling network and once again we are honored on this show to have our very special guest but before we do that i'd like to introduce everybody my name is noel zarate along with sid ventura and attorney charlie kuna and it is morning here in the philippines and over there in the u.s uh and at the uh, pacific coast it is almost uh i think it is past uh, uh 6 p.m over there and we'd like to bring in our guest of course ladies and gentlemen the very first filipino american to play in the nba but not only did he break grounds in that avenue he is also a visionary heritage night is one of the things that he made happen in the association we just like to say mabuhay and welcome to an eternity of basketball raymond townsend let's give raymond townsend thank you baby. welcome, welcome. How are you doing? noel sid and charlie <laughs> yeah uh, uh raymond how are you doing right now uh, uh in the midst of this uh, pandemic Oh, I'm doing well, you know, like anything else, you know, uh, great players. Coach Wooden used to say, whatever comes at you, you play above it. So uh, kind of living above the situation and still making the best of it and still serving children and, and you know, doing basketball and staying busy, still training about 150 kids a week. So see a lot of a lot of people who still love the game and Fortunately, you know, we're outdoors because all of our gyms are closed. So we found a really nice place outside, two beautiful sport courts with glass backboards. I have uh, the full property. And uh, so I have young men who have seized the opportunity to put more time in their basketball. And the nice thing is, and I told them, you know, whenever a crisis comes around and knocks at your door, the minute you can get over it once, every time crisis or you know, situations or problems knock at your door, you can start smiling at it because you know how to conquer it. So 
they've made the best of it. They've delayed uh, all the high school, college seasons for four months. Uh, so I told young people that it gives you four more months to become the best player you're capable of becoming. So we're, we're uh, enjoying the pandemic. Obviously, we want it to be normal. Uh, but it's given, I think God has uh, given us a chance to get back to family and some of those values uh, that I think in a world where we're, you know, trying to, to make ends meet with two, two parents working and things of that nature, we've come back to family. And the greatest thing about the Filipino heritage and the Filipino heart, we're all about familia. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so for us, it wasn't a big change because family's always been a priority for the Philippine people. Well, it's a good thing you guys are safe and, and making the most out of this pandemic. Um, uh, Raymond, we have a long journey that we're going to be talking about here today. There's a lot of years to go on with, with this long <laughs> journey, so I understand. I don't know. I'm on Manong now. There's a long journey. <laughs> That's okay. But, but if we, if we, if we could take a little longer than the usual with, with this episode. But, you know, I just want to go back to how it all started with you. Uh, of course, your, your uh, mother is from Balayan, Batangas, and you were born in San Jose. When did you discover the sport of basketball? And when did you start picking it up and saying that you could actually be good at this sport? Well, it's how a funny story. My, my father... Uh, my father's German, Irish, and Dutch, and my mother is is uh, from Batangas, from uh, Taal, and my dad was a pro baseball player. So I honestly wanted to be a New York Yankee, and uh, so I was taught to switch hit at seven years old, and I was a great second baseman, shortstop my whole life, and uh, I was going to be a, a great major leaguer, and it just so happened that. On, while I was growing up, I happened to be a pretty good quarterback. I was a pretty good basketball player. And uh, I put whatever season was in season, I put that kind of time in because I wanted to be the best at everything I did. So it just carried over. But I was destined to be a New York Yankee. That was my dream team. It was I wanted to do what my dad did. And uh, basketball just happened to be something I became great at. Well, then, okay. when you chose the sport of basketball, I mean, you, you mentioned all of these other sports. Why did you not choose to be a quarterback? You are six foot three. Then you would have been a pretty good quarterback as well. And then why did you play for the Yankees? Of course, the Oakland A's would have had something to say about that as well. Why did you choose uh, uh, going to basketball? Because yeah. yeah. real simple. Um, when I was growing up, I was a great drop back, drop back you know, passer. I could stand in the cup, look around. I had like those ice in your veins. I could stay and be patient, find my targets. But when I went to high school and I wanted to play football, they ran a sprint out series. Well, a sprint out series quarterback is not 6'3", 165 pounds. It, that's what I was in high school. It was, uh, you know, 6'2", 220, because you came off, you know, the sprint out series, you either run or you pass. Uh, the minute I found out they were going to do that, I said, well, I'm going to play baseball and basketball in high school. So that's what eliminated football. Uh, I stayed with baseball. People don't even know this. Uh, one of the reasons that baseball was so prevalent in my life is I had a long talk with Coach Wooden when he came to my house to recruit me for basketball. One of the questions was, will I be allowed if I come to UCLA and play for you, will I be allowed to play baseball? 
And he said, the funny thing was, this is UCLA mentality. He said yes after the final four. <laughs> so it was expected. It was not expected yeah, yeah. that we win the conference. It was not, a, you know, we were supposed to win the conference. So we were supposed to get through the first round, the second round, and we were supposed to get to the final four every year. That's just what it was. And he said, as long as, you know, after the final four, just don't get hurt. But I, uh, he goes, I don't have many athletes that can play both sports. So I played three years varsity baseball, UCLA. I hit 310 for three years, hit 356 my senior year, uh, was 120 picked by the Cincinnati Reds, but they only offered me about a fourth of what the Golden State Warriors offered me. And coming from a very humble background, you know, I chose the big contract. Plus, with basketball, I automatically got my retirement with my first contract. So I was going to get paid forever. So it was a pretty easy decision. The other thing is we didn't have a union we had no NBA players union. So when my contract had said I couldn't water ski, couldn't snow ski, I couldn't play any other sport professionally. So that was, you know, kind of something. And then I think when Danny Ainge came out, he ended up playing with, uh, I think it was the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. Dan yeah. yeah. played in the NBA. And there were a couple others. And then you saw Bo Campbell play football and baseball. And then you saw some others. But that was after a players union was, you know, developed and, you know, and, and the unions decided you can't tell players what to do or not do in their off seasons. So, yeah, yeah. Raymond, uh, I'll just want to I just want to backtrack a little bit. Um, you must have been pretty good in high school to uh, fall on the radar of the great John Wooden. Uh, could you just tell, tell us about your your high school basketball experience? And sure. Uh, so when I was in eighth grade, uh, we have a, a very, very good high school here. Uh, they play one of the top leagues in Northern California. And I think what makes it so great is the intensity of the league. It's a defense first league and everybody in the league can play defense. And on any given night, any team can win. It's called the WCAL, the West Catholic Athletic League. And I went to one of the top schools called Mitty High School. And uh, I had a great, great coach. I think coaching... You know, people don't want to probably say this, but great coaching's great coaching makes greater players. And if you can get a coach that has knowledge of of the intricacies of the game, a great chess player, somebody who sees the game as Coach Wooden put, the the court is a book, and every chapter in that book you have to have a great understanding. And in that chapter you have counters and you have automatics and you have things of that nature that coaches need to be able to see. If a coach can't teach his mindset to his players, his players will never be at one with the coach in the system that he's trying to run. And you're going to find that in NBA basketball right now, uh, you're seeing a lot of coaches go back to old school basketball with great athletes, um, which I'm happy to say because it, it's sometimes tough for me to watch basketball the way it's being played. you got the greatest athletes, but sometimes they don't understand the game the way we learn the game. And, and granted, I played for a, a great coach in high school named Dan Fitzgerald, who after Mitty went to Santa Clara University, who, by the way, went to Gonzaga, turned them into a top 25, uh, got in trouble for some recruiting violations and handed his top 25 Gonzaga program to Mark Few, who I think is a fantastic coach. And Mark Few turned it into a top five. So having Coach Fitzgerald when I was younger and all through the ranks, and then Coach Wooden could just see my IQ. 
I have a different IQ than most players. I see the game differently. I play it differently. Um, I was pretty athletic, but I wasn't the greatest athlete in the world, but I did everything well. And I worked hard to do everything well. So that caught Coach Wooden's eye. I, I think the fact that uh, I'm going to tell you a funny story if you've got a minute. Uh, sure. Coach Wooden came to my house because, you know, the question Sid asked is, that, you know, how did it catch your eye? Coach Wooden came to my house and when he knocked on the door, you know, to be honest with you, as a young kid, I had 125 different scholarship offers from all over the United States. So I just wanted to play somewhere where my journey would be a forever journey that I would remember forever. And in the back of my mind, if I do have a chance to play pro basketball, I want to be on TV as much as we can. And UCLA at that time was one of the top five schools every year. I don't think we were ever ranked less than fifth. And we were on TV every weekend. So when Coach Wooden came in, he sat down. He said, you know, Raymond, we run a program of honesty and integrity. So I want to let you know right from the get-go, you're not my number one pick. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of looked at Coach because I was kind of cocky back in the day. And I just said, what do you mean, Coach? I'm not your number one pick. And he goes, you're my number two pick. And I said, yes, sir. I said, well, who's your number one pick? He goes, a guy named Mark Wolfmeyer. He said, Mark Wolfmeyer is averaging 39 points in the L.A. area. He's my number one. You're only averaging 29 points a game. And you have to understand, that was without a three. We had no three-pointer back then. Uh -huh. And I was like, all right. He said, so how do you feel about that? You're my number two. I said, coach, I'm okay with it. And right after I said that, he just took a, a little breath and said, and mind you, I'm going to recruit 14 other All-Americans during your four-year tenure. How do you feel about that? And me being me, I just said, okay, coach, bring them on. I was okay with that. So from that standpoint, you know, I caught his eye. Uh, I knew who he was. Uh, little did I know he would make the greatest impact in my basketball career that any man could have ever made. Um, so the minute that conversation ended, uh, he had a way of, of humbling All-Americans. Now, you have to understand, at UCLA at that time, there were 15 All-Americans. It wasn't just six or three. It was 15 All-Americans playing because they all had the same idea. And I remember he had a funny way of humbling you. I'd say, hey, coach, you know, I have a question uh, before I sign my letter of, of, of uh, intent. And he goes, yes, Raymond. And I said, coach, I've had number 11 in baseball and basketball. I would like number 11, you know, for my UCLA career. He goes, you know, Raymond, at UCLA, he said, we don't ask for numbers. We assign them. He goes, but I'm going to do you a favor. And so I got really excited. I said, wow, I'm going to be the first number 11 in UCLA history. Because uh, at that time, you know, they had all the numbers and there was never a number 11. And he goes, I'm going to do you a favor. So I got really excited. He goes, you could have number 22 because Tommy Curtis is graduating. He's number 22 and that's two 11s. <laughs> so <laughs> after that, I kind of got humbled and never asked for another thing. <laughs> and then he... Uh, he came back and he goes, I got one question for you. I said, yes, sir. I used to have these wristbands and I used to sew two wristbands together on a right guard can. And so my wristbands were, were a good four, five inches up my arm. And he goes, can I ask you, what do those serve? Do they have a purpose? I said, yes, sir. I said, I sweat a lot. So to keep it off my brow, I said, I like having the security. And if I 
hit somebody. I'm protecting my wrists if I go up because I'm going to try to draw a foul. I said it has multi-purposes. He goes, okay, then you could use them. <laughs> so he was, you know, with all Americans, it didn't matter. And I remember our first meeting with Coach Wooden. We're all sitting there and, you know, here's all these veterans and everybody else. And he goes, okay. And he threw us our blue and gold white with blue and gold striped mm -hmm. socks. He goes, the first thing we do, take your shoe off. So we, everybody took their shoe off. And I was kind of looking at Marcus Johnson, who took me under his wing. And I looked at Marcus. He went, you know, take your shoe off. So I took my shoe off. So coach had us pull up our socks. And he goes, all right, first of all, you got to know UCLA. Get up on your toe. While you're sitting down, just lift your toe up. See where that cuff, see where the calf muscle rounds. That's where your socks go. He goes, that's where they go. That's where you wear them. That's where everybody wears them. And then, you know, me being curious, I said, you know, he said, yes, Raymond. I said, well, coach, you know, what if you dive on the floor? I'd like to, you know, when I lose ball, I'm going on the floor. My socks are going to fall down. He goes, that's okay. He goes, next dead ball, you pull them back up. <laughs> I said, okay. Is there a consequence? He goes, you know, my expectation. And that's who he was. Coach Wooden had an expectation to do things right. Uh, he had an expectation to run the offense correct, to execute it correctly, to take good shots, to play defense. He had expectations that all of his players understood, and you played to his expectation, which was greatness. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, all in all, it just it, it was all part of the journey. Raymond, Raymond, growing up, what, what uh, about, when you were still a kid, how, how, how Filipino was your family? I mean, how much of an influence was your mom to you and your, your, your brother and, and the other people in your family? Was it a very Filipino-like atmosphere in your house where you eat the Filipino food? Was she telling you about your Filipino relatives and your heritage and all of that as you were growing up uh, before you even became an athlete? Yes, we had uh, Frank Perez and Letty Perez. Uh, who kept us informed of our Filipino heritage. My mom, obviously, you know, we ate the, the lumpia, the pancit, the dinaguan, <laughs> you know, we, we ate all of that. And uh, so we always had that. We always had uh, uh, the maruya for Christmas. I mean, we, <laughs> oh, so we, wow. kept, we, we kept a lot of those traditions. Um, it was the biggest Filipino tradition that we had was about family, the heart of family. My mom was all about keeping, you know, Filipino mothers. I mean, we all have them. Yeah. It was all about keeping us strong together, that nothing's bigger than family, that we fight together, we live together, we die together. You know, it was ride or die with your family. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's who my mom was. And then the other side of my mom was serving everybody you can. My mom would have given her shirt off her back to serve anybody in need. And, uh, you know, little did we know these things until my mom passed about 16 years ago. And we found this black book of all the people she helped. And we didn't realize the first thing I said, one of the greatest things you could ever do is to help someone who will never be able to repay you back. And it was a list. And I'm talking about there were hundreds of people that she helped. And we didn't know where she got this money because we didn't have money. So she was, you know, she used to work three jobs and do things and she's helped a lot, a lot. And we found out how many people that my mom serviced and helped who were in need. And so we learned about servicing society and community and helping with the Filipino heart.
So from that standpoint, our Filipino culture is what has driven the service. And all my brothers and sisters were all in, you know, what I call the service industry. You know, my brother's uh, uh, the first associate head coach over at Kansas University has been serving young men his whole life. My sister is, uh, you know, a director at an optometrist and she serves people. My other sister runs group homes for ward of the court children who don't have parents. My youngest sister is a general manager who services the public at a Safeway. Uh, I personally, for 20, since 1990, we've serviced over 23,000 families in basketball and about 10,000 families in special needs. So Coach Wooden was all about, spoke all about, you know, it, the importance is uh, serving other people. And uh, my mom brought that to our family. And so everybody in our family, you know, we've been serving people for a long time. It's just interesting. I was, I was just uh, looking up at the, um, your part of your family history that uh, in 1976, a Sports Illustrated issue featured your dad, Ray Sr., uh, and it's faces in the crowd uh, uh, section. And he was recognized as the oldest junior college basketball player in history. Uh, th this, this piqued my interest. At the age of 39, he was yeah. the second man off the bench. Uh, this is something that I guess we need a little bit of a story from you on. My, my father <laughs> called me when I was at UCLA. My brother at that time uh, was playing for Bud Presley, one of the greatest defensive coaches at Menlo College. And my brother just got signed to go to Western Kentucky and play for Gene Cady, who you remember Gene Cady went to Western Kentucky to Purdue, one of the great basketball minds. And uh, my dad got us on a conference call and he just said, hey, I just want to let my sons know that I'm playing with you guys. <laughs> kind of, my brother and I kind of looked at each other and we kind of said, what? He said, dad said, hey. I'm playing. I ran into my buddy. He's my PE teacher. He went back to school after baseball to get his, you know, his finalized his career so he can get into more coaching. And uh, he goes, I ran into him and I was just shooting around. And the guy goes, hey, Ray, I need a shooter off the bench. <laughs> so my dad goes, really? And, you know, my dad, he was probably kidding. And my dad probably didn't know he was kidding. So my dad decided... <laughs> He was going to take him up. My dad made the team. Hey, he smelled like Ben Gay whenever we saw him. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he reeked of Ben Gay, but he was so proud. And my brother and I, you know, whenever we could get off, my brother and I would go to a game and he came off the bench, averaged about six, seven points a game. And always had some, either his leg was wrapped with an ace bandage or he was always was like that. Every time I see you, you're limping. What's going on? He goes, Raymond, you know how old I am? I said, I, I got it, Dad. I said, you know. I said, Dad, do you ever think your coach might have been kidding when he asked you that? He goes, man, I'm having the time of my life. I said, well, enjoy it. So, yeah, that was a, a big part of his life. You know, I lost my dad last November. Uh, was uh, Probably losing my mom 16 years ago was probably the most devastating thing that's ever happened in my life. And then losing my dad for the you know, complete loss of when you lose your mother and your father who have both made such a great impact in your life. It's a, it's a tough thing. So I know they're happy together. I know one day, you know, God's going to allow me to give them a hug again in his kingdom. So very grateful. And, and speaking of that, I just want to make sure that I give glory to God for this opportunity 
to make sure people understand that my my career, my journey, you know, as we get into it, they're going to see so many things that God has allowed me to overcome to become the first Filipino ever to play in the NBA. And I should say Filipino American because I know there's there's, you know, sticklers about being natural born Filipinos and Filipinos. But, you know, for me. I've always been proud of my Kababayan heritage, and I've spoken about it, you know, ever since I was young. And uh, I just want to make sure he gets the glory, because without him, I wouldn't have anything. You know, mm-hmm. I would have nothing. So I want to make sure we we get that out and make sure people understand how important he is in my life. Amen to that. Amen, amen. Uh, you know what? You're, you're. I wanted to ask earlier when you were talking about the number eleven, why you are so enamored with the number eleven. Uh, was it significant to you growing up? Um, well, there used to be, no, it was just number one. <laughs> I had two ones. So, hey, <laughs> I, they, you couldn't have a number one back in the day. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, so I kept number 11 all my life, you know, except for my UCLA career. Cause at Golden State, I had 11, uh, I had 11 at Portland. I had 11 at Indiana. So, and I didn't change numbers until I went to Europe. I was in Italy. Uh, played in Italy. I played in Brazil for their Olympic team. I uh, got to travel and we made a, a, some small trip over here. And I changed my number to seven because that was the number. That's God's number of perfection. It's perfection of the Bible is number seven. So I would change from 11 to seven later on in my career and took number uh, seven and used seven when I was in Italy and uh, and and traveling the world but it's always been number 11 it's, i don't know why probably because i could play all three sports and keep the same number 11 is a quarterback number 11 is you could wear it at shortstop second base and you can wear it in basketball so i think it was for the time being it was a number that i could wear at all three sports and be okay with mm-hmm. okay Grow, growing up who were your influences as far as basketball is concerned raymond when you were growing up uh you were there in san jose california area Obviously, perhaps you were a Warriors fan already back then. I don't know what which other teams you were watching. Who were the the guys that you looked up to and, and were excited to watch whenever they'd be on television? I uh, I tried to emulate my game after uh, Pete Maravich, uh, and okay. Pete Maravich only because I think he was a man beyond his time. I mean, he was you know way beyond his his years in terms of the game, the things he did, the way he saw the court. The way he, you know, he was deceptively, he was de- he was like deceptive with his quickness. He wasn't like the quickest guy in the world, but he sure knew everything about change of pace and change of direction. He understood hesitation. He understood great shooting and pump fakes, freeze mm-hmm. defenses. And, you know, he understood a lot of the things that, that kids are right now are starting to learn again. But he was already teaching a lot of that you know, at a, at a very, very young age, he was taught. And then he just, I mean, what he averaged 30 some points a game in college, 36, 38 mm-hmm. points. 44 so, in this last year. Yeah. What, what did he average? 44, 44. in this last year without a three point shot. 44. Well, that's probably yeah. why he had number 44 in the NBA. I, I know <laughs> I was lucky. Uh, you know, all the guys I looked up to Jojo white was another one. Uh, love Jojo white's game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a chance to play with Joe Joey at the end of his career. He, he uh, got traded to us and um, finished his career with us. And 
Jojo, for whatever reason, he loved me. He took me under his wing, played one-on-one, sat with me when we were on the bench. Uh, I started my second year at Golden State, averaged 12 points and five assists. But he would sit with me on the bench and talk to me. And, and you know, and he found it interesting because I'd have a little notebook. So I'd always put it under my bench. I'd take notes, put it down. Jojo would show, would show me some. Let me show you what I'm seeing here. And so the way Jojo treated me was like he took me under his wing and then Phil Smith, our nine-time mm -hmm. NBA all-star, you know, whose career was um, amazing. And then he, yeah. he the only reason I started, I'll just be very candid, I was playing with John Lucas, Phil Smith, Jojo White, and I was the, the rook. And uh, at that time, the only reason I got the chance to start is in my second year, uh, Phil went down with an Achilles uh, injury right in front of our bench against the Washington Bullets at that time, the Wizards now, but the Bullets. Mm -hmm. And uh, the minute I saw that happen, it was a gruesome injury. And, you know, Achilles, now they can heal it and everything will be fine. Back then, you never knew. So the minute it happened, I realized that I was going to step up to the two guard because uh, Jojo wasn't really a two. He was playing more of our backup playmaker to John. So I got a chance to step up. But uh, Phil played one-on-one -on -one with me every single day after practice for the, the all the years I was with Phil. So, you know, I had not just that I have great coaching. I had wonderful players who, who loved me as a player. I think they loved my heart. And I think Phil loved the fact that he said I was the toughest guard to, to, to defend him that he's ever played against. Hmm. So I was a great defensive player. And uh, I think he felt by playing me one-on-one, -on -one, he was going to get better because he didn't get guarded better than anybody else, you know, that he did in practice. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate. You know, it's been, my life has been a blessing. If I were to see my mom and dad tomorrow, I mean, I'd be good with that because I have lived a blessed life with the people that I've gotten to know. And you know, I've lost both Jojo White and Phil Smith. And, you know, unfortunately, we're getting at the age where I'm losing a lot of my really good friends and, and people. So, you know, hopefully we can get through this pandemic, stay healthy and live, you know, as long as we can. But, you know, I'll, I've had a lot of people touch my life that I re remember when I sit back. Uh, I was well loved by a lot of great, great players and great coaches. So grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Pete Maravich. You know, as a kid, I used to have his instructional videos and homework basketball. How to dribble, <laughs> how, to, yeah, how to dribble, how to shoot, and I just could not uh, do anything that he was asking us to do. You know, the, least, hardest uh, one, yeah. you know, the hardest one I yeah. found was where he spin it on his finger, and I could do the one where you put oh, it up, you hit your elbow, and you catch yeah. it. And I, could do that. I couldn't do the one where he spun it, took it to the side, took it to the side bent down, put it through his legs, flipped right, it right. up, and then caught it. Now, I could never master that. <laughs> it, it was, uh, it was, uh, are you guys leaving? Yes. <laughs> Come and give Papa a kiss before you go. So I want you to meet somebody. This is my grandson. This is D'Angelo. Oh. Hey, happy birthday. Is he the guy who had here. a birthday yesterday? He just had his 10th birthday. Now, let me tell you, he's a southpaw, but this uh -huh. is going to be a shooter. This is going to be the generational shooter that you're going to see right. one day. He, 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 he got three range. He just turned 10, can hit a three very easy. I don't know if that's a blessing to thank Steph Curry or not. 
but they all see him <laughs> shoot it, so they shoot it. This is Sienna. This is Sienna. Oh, okay. Sienna is is my other little dancer and baller, and she's gonna be nine next month. But they live with me, and I'm very very blessed to have them be a part of my life. So they're gonna give me a kiss because they're visiting their dad this weekend. All right, love you guys. All right, I'll see you. All right. <laughs> have fun. Uh, have fun. Have fun. <laughs> hey, uh, yeah, yes, yeah. You know, I Did never they call thought... you Lolo. Did they call you Lolo? No, I'm Papa, I'm just Papa. Oh, okay. Simple, right. I don't want them to mess that up and call me anything else. <laughs> you I, know, I just we... wanted to go. Yeah, go ahead. I uh, said, uh, was that Charlie or Sid? Oh, that, yeah, that was me. That was me. Yeah, yeah go I ahead. I was going to say, we, we can't, you know, we can't just leave the, the topic about the UCLA Bruins and then because of how great yeah. that team was. You know, that stretch 10 years before you came along, what, what, a, what a run that was for Coach Wooden and the rest of those guys. Um, you know, obviously, you got to play with some of some great players. You, you mentioned Marcus Johnson a while ago. I was looking at the lineups throughout your, your four years over there, and mm. you got some NBA hey, caliber I want you, guys. I want, I want you to look at my junior year. Mm -hmm. Look that team <laughs> up. So let me tell you, 11 of us went to the NBA. Mm -hmm. Eight of us were first-rounders. Right, right. That's 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 what I was gonna say. A bunch of guys went to the NBA, and some were some were big names. Some were high draft picks, guys like David Greenwood. You had Kiki Vandeweghe. Exactly. And it's crazy when you look at it. And how how was the camaraderie? How how was that? You know, I, I, is it still going on until now? I know the Chapel Hill guys see each other often. I know the Dukies see each other often. How is it with UCLA? I, I, did you get to meet Kareem and Walton and all these guys who came before you? So was, you know? yeah, it's a that's a great question. So UCLA is like a family, um, family, like, I mean, forever family. Uh, Marcus is one of my best friends, stay in touch with him all the time. Bill Walton recruited me. Okay. He recruited me when I flew into LA. That was the first guy I saw before I saw coach Wooden. Uh, it would have been my second meeting with coach Wooden, but after he left my, my, my home, but Bill, Bill was waiting for me. And uh, it was kind of a funny story. Bill was in he was in he was in overalls. Uh, he was growing a beard. He had an orange. I remember this. He was barefoot, and wow. when I walked in and, and met him, he goes, "Hey, Bill Walden, I'm showing you around." And, and I said, "Okay." So that's how we became friends. To this day, Bill and I are great friends. Uh, Kareem, Lucius Allen, we can go down the list. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a dinner right before Coach Wooden passed. And they had 10 tables. And on every table, if you were still you know, alive, was every one of his NCAA championship teams. And I remember Coach Wooden would always, he had great relationships, but obviously he started with Kareem and he started with Bill and he'd tell some funny story or something about them. And I remember I said, oh man, I, I don't know what he's going to talk to me about, but I, I, you know, but I'll tell you the greatest thing I remember was every player stood up. They put their hands behind their back in such esteem and honor for coach Wooden. And then whatever he said about you, it didn't matter. You just laughed because that was coach. And I remember when he, when he can't call my name, I was like, Oh, I wonder if he's going to tell the fact that, he used to eat my prunes because I would never eat prunes. I was, I was worried he's going to tell me some kind of story like that. 
And of all the stories, he said, yeah, Raymond Townsend, my, what do you say? My granddaughter had a crush on him for years. I was really worried. <laughs> he went into that kind of a story. I thought it was going to be a basketball story or something. But uh, it was amazing how every player stood with such esteem and honor before him. And it was 12 tables or it was 10 tables of national championship teams. And I was on his last one. Uh, but, you know, played with some great, great men who displayed great work ethic, unselfishness at the epitome of unselfishness. Uh, David Myers was a blue collar guy I could name that just did his job and took me under his wing as well and, and taught me the ropes of UCLA basketball. But Marcus Johnson, Richard Washington, they were my best friends. Uh, Marcus and I played three three years together before Marcus went to the NBA. Uh, I remember when Richard signed a year early, Coach Wooden was really upset. He liked his players to stay four years and get your education. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no such thing as, you know, signing early uh, to the NBA when Coach Wooden was around. So, uh, you know, from that standpoint. But, you know, that one year, 11 players, our practices were so competitive. And, you know, everybody – you couldn't have a day off. If you got injured, somebody else had your job. Uh, I always tell my, my uh, players, uh, I tell them an interesting story. So my, my sophomore year, I worked my butt off in the off season because I saw it as an opportunity to start. Uh, both our guards left. At that time, it was, uh, it was Pete Turgovich, uh, Andre McCarter. And uh, I saw a really great opportunity to take one of the jobs. So I worked really hard in the offseason. And then, you know, it was the year Coach Wooden decided to leave. And Coach Bartow came in from, uh, I think he was at Memphis at that time. And Coach Wooden was a balanced offensive system. Everybody involved, everybody shooting. Uh, Coach Bartow was a power. His was a power offense. It was you were going to, guards were going to get the ball inside. And if they dump it back to you, if it's not a good shot, you're dumping it right back in. So it was a big change. And then, he saw me as a point combo where Coach Wooden saw me as a shooting guard. And back then, we had two really great guards from L.A., and I didn't realize, but uh, they were promised jobs. And, you know, and both of them were very cocky, very good players. Don't get me wrong. It was Brad Holland and Roy Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And I remember, uh, you know, they were talking. And, you know, as young kids get, you know, you get cocky and you talk too much. And they mentioned that they, they were going to start because that was the reason they signed at UCLA. And then the, the wooden players got together. And we kind of said, you know, it's kind of strange. Why would he you know, not give the wooden players? We developed the, the tradition. Why wouldn't Coach Bartow give us an opportunity to continue the tradition and let those guys earn their, it didn't work like that. So we started Roy and Brad. And I remember calling my dad and my mom. And I told him, I said, Hey, you know, I'm really upset. I'm a little bit upset at and frustrated at the, the way this is all coming down. Two freshmen are being offered jobs and they never deserve it. And my mama said, there's always a, a there's always an inner story to everything that happens to us. It's, it's happening because it's going to build a bigger thing. I said, mom, this is making me angry. I just want to punch them in their face. <laughs> That's what I said. And uh, my dad was, go get your job. I said, what do you mean? He says, go get your job. Every day in practice, you make their life miserable. 
He goes, you play more physical. You're more physical than both of them. He goes, now, the ones that want their job are going to fight you. And the ones that don't want the job, they're going to let you have their job. So I went back and, you know, three fist fights later, <laughs> Coach, <laughs> Coach Bartow brought me in the office. And he goes, you know, well, Raymond, you know, he had this southern tone. Well, Raymond, you know, we just don't do those things here at UCLA. And I said, I got a coach. I said, you know, coach, nobody trying to hurt nobody. But I said, this, since we're being honest with each other, I said, coach, you gave my job to two freshmen who haven't earned it. So, coach, I'm going to fight for my, I won't get no more fist fights, but I'm going to fight for my job every day. I'm going to play physical. I'm going to dive on loose balls. Hey, I'm going to do whatever I have to to get the job. And I told my dad I, I'm going to give it like 10 games. And then I'm going to finish the year. And if I don't get it in 10 games, because I was playing really, I, was, I mean, I played exceptional basketball. I was shooting over 50%. I came off the bench. I, you know, as a sixth, seventh man, I was doing great things. And the freshmen were making freshman mistakes. They weren't playing very well. And finally, uh, it was, uh, who was the other starter? I think it was me and Jim Spillane. It was somebody on the other end. But, Coach, Coach Bartow came up and he goes, you know, Raymond, you're our best defensive player. We play Notre Dame national TV. I've given the freshmen nine games. They haven't played, you know, to their expectation I expected. So I'm going to give you your opportunity. You're starting on national TV. You get to guard Adrian Dantley. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. He's, aver <laughs> he's averaging 26 games, 20.6 points a game. So he goes, you know what? He's only 6'3", 6'4". He's bigger than you, but we think with you getting in him, you know, we're going to do something. That was my first start as a sophomore. I had 17 points, held Adrian to about 22. We won. I got Schick player of the game, and that was the start of my career. But little did I know, little did I know to Marcus, Coach Larry Farmer, some of these big names, <laughs> we had a reunion, <laughs> and they came up. And Marcus goes, hey, do you remember that game against Notre Dame that you just went off and you got the player of the game and everything and we won? And I said, yeah. He goes, do you ever remember what happened in the locker room? I said, no. Nah. He said, you walk up to Brad Holland and you put your finger right in his face and you said, as long as I'm living at UCLA, you will never play before me in the next three years I'm here. <laughs> I said, that wasn't me. I don't do things like that. And, you know, Coach Farmer told me, yeah, you do. He said, you did do that. And, you know, when I tell kids, because I get a lot of kids talk to me about politics. That was politics. And, you know, and, and I, I tell these stories because I told my players what such a great player Brad Holland was. Not to build myself up, to let them know. So I told them that guy never played another, another never started before me the next three years. When I left, he started for the first time his senior year. He he was going to leave, you know, a number of times during the year. Coach Herrick's had to, Coach Jim Herrick had to talk him into staying. And I have great respect for Brad Holland. This is no disrespect. But when I talk to young people about wanting something and the desire to fight for something, if I didn't fight for that job, I wouldn't have the career I have today. I wouldn't have been the first Filipino in the NBA because – the final story in that ends like this. I leave. I'm the 21st pick in the nation. He's the 15th pick in the nation mm -hmm. the next year. Right. 
he got picked higher than I did in the first round. Mm -hmm. So what was my story to young people? That, you know what? There's going to be politics. If you want something bad enough, you go work for it. And stay humble. Don't, you know, don't create havoc with the coach, you know. But let everybody around show the head coach. Because what was happening in that situation for me is my play dictated the media to talk about Bartow not playing me. My work ethic and practice caused the assistant coaches to come to me and say, hey, keep working. He goes, your time will come. In every meeting, people are talking about you, so you keep playing. So I went over, not the person that makes the decisions, but everybody around. And then not just that, the UCLA fans, I was getting standing ovations whenever I came in, whenever I went out. I won the heart of the people. So there's ways to beat politics is what I tell young people. You just got to persevere and fight for it. So right. I always have that story because we did have great talent. And if I had one bad day, Brad Holland would have took his job right back. Great player. You know, Roy Hamilton, seventh pick that year. Brad was the 15th pick that year. Uh, David was, I think, the two, a two pick, second yeah, or third, I think. Yeah. So, you know, three first rounders on, on the team. So, um, you know, I've got, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to, to have traveled a lot of different journeys that allowed me to reach such a monumental position of carrying a torch for a people that have never had an NBA player. But I think people now that I'm older, I want people to understand the journey and what it took to get there. I don't think people understood all the things I had to go through. I mean, I've overcome injury. I had an injury my junior year. Uh, I had tendonitis. I was playing with a really bad uh, tendonitis problem in one of my knees to the point where I had ice four days a week. So they took this experimental drug called Indocin, which is now an anti-inflammatory drug that's, mm -hmm. you know, used. But at the time, it was still being experimented, so they gave it to me. Well, it was too strong for my stomach. So all the time I was pumping Indocin in, into me, it was affecting my, my stomach and my intestines. Well, eventually, I got hit against Cal Berkeley. It was at the end of the season, but I got hit. And uh, I felt something inside of me that made me, you know, whenever we're in real deep pain, what do we do is uh, we, we go into a fetal position. Am I right? With anything that really hurts a lot, we go into a fetal position because it's comforting. It's where we were in our mom's womb. So I went into that position, but they couldn't, something was happening because they couldn't take my knees and open me up. So all I kept hearing is we're going to have to cut them open and do exploratory surgery. And they said, no, he's young. If we do that, we never play again. They go, well, something's going on. What they found is the indocent ate a hole in my stomach. Uh, and the acid was dripping onto my intestines, but it was a, the, the hole the size of a quarter. They put me in intensive care for 10 days. I went from 165 pounds to 125. So I was six, just under six, four, 125 pounds. And I was told I would never play again. Um, I went through that at the end of my junior year. And, you know, after all that hard work, I still got two All-American guards sitting here hungry to take my job. So I had to get my weight back. Uh, at that point, uh, Coach Gary Cunningham, who was John Wooden's assistant, took over our job, which right. was amazing because uh, Gene Bartow was only 54 and six. <laughs> he 
and he got fired. <laughs> you know, Coach Marco, God rest his soul, was a, he was a really good coach, good man, great coach. Just it was tough to follow Wooden. I mean, I think he was fifty-five yeah. and six, and that wasn't good enough. And uh, uh, I know it was. We lost in a Final Four against the undefeated Indiana team in '76. And then we got knocked out junior year. We were 30 and 0. And Idaho State beat us on a 22 foot hook shot by Steve Hayes. It was a, the greatest upset in NCAA history, they call it. Uh, just threw up a shot and it beat us. And, uh, and that was the year we were ranked number one. And that was the year we had the 11 pros. And it was, you know, heartbreaking um, because that was the year everybody counted us taking another, you know, another one home. Uh, but, you know, come, overcoming politics, overcoming injury, overcoming, you know, different, different situations um, is the lesson I think God allowed me to go through. So now when I can speak into young people's lives who have the same visions as I have, they understand that I have been there and I've been there and I've overcome it and so can they. But you give them the ways they can overcome it, you know, because you have the knowledge. Uh, Raymond, that last year uh, of John Wooden, your your rookie year, it's also the last championship in that, that ten year run. But um, was there any inkling that uh, Coach Wooden was uh, gonna going to resign after that? After that Not one. Where... Everybody was totally shocked after Coach Wooden came into the huddle against Louisville, and Louisville was big and strong, and you know it was the big Wooden versus his his assistant Denny Crum and. I remember sitting there because I'm like, I'm like a, a sponge for basketball strategy and knowledge and looking. And Coach Wooden came in, and there was probably three or four seconds left. And he goes, "We're going to run an out of bounds play. We're down one. We're going to get a shot. You know, if you hit the shot, we win, and we're in the finals. And if you don't, we're going to get a good shot. Bottom line." So he drew it all up, and he told Richard Washington, and basically it was some kind of pick the picker action, and he said, Richard, you're going to be wide open on this. You have about an eight-footer. And by golly, we executed it like he said. Richard got an eight-footer, knocked it down. We were in the championship against Kentucky. We were in the locker room, and Coach Wooden was his normal self, which was quiet, humble, gave us the game plan. This is what you got to do to win. You know, if you, if you execute and do these things, you're going to be the national champions. If you don't, you will compete, but mistakes will cost you a championship. And and then at the end of giving us his normal, you know, X's and O's and motivational thing, and, and it was never never too high, never too low, never a lot of emotion. And uh, then he goes, and I just want to make sure all of you know, he goes, this will be the last game I coach at UCLA. Man, wow! everybody wow. just looked at each other and put their head down. And then, you know, David Myers goes, that's great, coach. So that's, that way we have to win it for sure because this is your last hurrah. He goes, win or lose, I'm done after this game. And, uh, you know, it was uh, – I actually, uh, you know, I remember that day. I actually uh, – went into the bathroom and I shed a tear because he was the reason that I went to UCLA. You know, it wasn't anything else. It was, I wanted to play for the greatest mind that basketball has ever 
ever created. And uh, I'll never forget that time when he said that. I went in, I didn't want nobody to see me shed a tear, but I was so respected, respectful and, and I honored and, and had so much love for the game because of this man. And I used to just sit down before a game and talk basketball all the time with him. And I, I know he loved my mind. And, uh, but that's how it happened. And I know it uh, shocked all of his players and uh, you know, it was uh, it, it was a quiet, quiet moment. You could hear a pin drop. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, sure. a, that's a great story. Never heard that one before. Mm -hmm. Well, sure. you know, uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I mean, we've been getting so many great stories from, from Raymond Townsend. And um, uh, when we return, we're going to take a look at some pictures, Raymond, of your journey. Uh, in the uh, in the NBA as well, but uh, I know there's a lot of stuff that we want to talk about, especially how you came up with Heritage Night. We're going to talk more about that when we return. Stay with us right here on an eternity of basketball. And we continue with an eternity of basketball. Just a reminder to everybody that we are also on Spotify and on Anchor. Most of our episodes are already up, so you can take us on the go and keep us on the background whenever and wherever. Right now, an eternity of basketball. Uh, the podcast is now on Spotify and on Anchor. And of course, we are part of the Globally Ballin Network, and we also have the Globally Ballin Podcast, a show where you take a, where we take a surface level view of sports and opportunities around the world. And make sure you check that out as well. Cassie Gormley also has a show called Halftime with Cassie G. Uh, you can follow all of the shows on the Globally Ballin Network. Halftime with Cassie G, the uh, Globally Ballin Podcast, and of course, our show on Eternity of Basketball. So we rejoin the action here. It's really action-packed so far. We are learning so many stories that we've never heard of before from uh, Raymond Townsend. Uh, Raymond, at this point, we have a few pictures that we want to show you. Uh -oh. And uh, I just want to get your... Big uh, afro? Hey, before you show those pictures, I want to let you know. Uh -huh. My hair was the reason nobody believed I was Filipino. Everybody <laughs> thought I was black. So when I said, hey, no, I'm, I'm Pinoy. Pinoy, you're black. No, no, I said, no, I'm Filipino. No, you're black. I mean, you know, it was just, that's just the way it was. I could never get, so if you, and you know, now that I'm like this, you know, now that I've had two girls and I lost all of this, I miss, you know, running, running through the breeze and feeling that go through my hair. <laughs> well, you're going to see, you're going to see that the, the Afro when, when we show you some of the pictures. So let's have the first one up, Bianca, so we can uh, pick the brain of Raymond Townsend on this one. Here it is, UCLA. Um, I, and I was talking to you yesterday, Raymond, about your jump shot. It is the classic form. In fact, I was sharing with Raymond yesterday, there are two players who I think have the prettiest jump shot in all of basketball, uh, people I grew up idolizing, actually, Raymond Townsend and uh, Scott Wedman who eventually played for the Boston Celtics. And you said you played with Scott Whitman. And your, your jump shots are like the prettiest jump shots I've ever seen. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, you know, you want to know who changed my jump shot. I used to – and I know I'm going back in time because you probably don't even know this guy. There was a guy at New Mexico State, and I loved his jump shot. I used to watch Walt Frazier. And, you know, Noel, you and I had this conversation. I used to watch Walt Frazier growing yeah. up. I used to watch uh, – uh, Jojo had a pretty classic jump shot, but I used to watch uh, Jimmy Collins from mm -hmm. New Mexico State, about 6'4", 
180, 180, it built like a George Gervin. Everything he did was a fallaway. So I worked on a fallaway jumper all the way through middle school, going into uh, high school. I worked on a, I could shoot a spot up jumper and I had good enough range and I had good wrist action early. But when I got to UCLA, Coach Wooden took me into practice and he said, okay, I want you to shoot crossover either way, shoot jumpers. Well, it's tough to shoot a fall away jumper to your right. So I went to my left all the time because everybody forced me on left. And I realized when I was young, you forced me to my left, my shooter's tilt is already ready to shoot. So I have a quicker jumper going left than I do to the right. So you have a lot of players right now who are learning. He's right-handed, force him to his left. You don't want to force a, a right-hander to his left. You force him to his right because when he goes right, the shooting shoulders away from the basket. He has to bring it back to you. So it, it's beyond me how many players guard Luka Doncic and they let him go left when his Doncic step back He's ready to shoot the minute he gets space. But if you make him do a step back to his right, as great as he is, it's a slower release. Mm -hmm. Well, once I learned that, I perfected my shot. And I so I, I made like 22 out of 25 for Coach Wood. And he goes, not bad. He goes, but that's not <laughs> fundamentally sound for UCLA basketball. I was like, what? I said, Coach, I just hit 22 out of 25. He goes, yeah, but it's not fundamental. I want fundamental. So he broke my shot down. He started with my feet, went to my legs, went to my knees, went to my knees and elbows, went up, talked about my being square, landing in the same spot. So he made me, he changed my jump shot. I never stopped having a fall away, so it still helped. But I had to become what he called a fundamentally sound shooter. So my mechanics changed when I got to UCLA, basically. Okay. I have a I have a related question to that. You talk about John Wooden and fundamentals. Is it true that if you didn't shoot a layup using the backboard, he'd get up in your face and then and get upset about that? He would. True story. But here's how it worked: If you came down on a break and you had a player going to challenge you, and you did not stop and take an eight or ten foot, twelve foot bank shot, you would most likely come to the bench and he just said, we don't do that here at UCLA. We shoot the bank shot. So the bank shot for coach Wooden and I, to this day, all the players I train, every one of them, they know how to use the bank shot because it's a lost art. Not many kids use it. We use it because I just think like coach Wooden, it's the highest percentage shot in basketball because mathematically if you hit a certain spot on that board. The ball's falling no matter what. Right. So, uh, yeah, that was that's a true story. When you got on the lane and you filled the lane and you were eight, ten feet away, he felt the layup is a bank shot. Okay, great. Okay, all right. So this was your success in, in UCLA, uh, uh, winning a national championship, of course, in 1975. Can we see the next picture, uh, Bianca? And oh, here it is. That's my that's my Golden State Warrior. Uh -huh. Warrior days. So that's, that's right. before Phil came, or not Phil, before JoJo came to us. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so uh, now, you know, and people, when I tell them that, you know, this is a good story. So double, double zero, everybody knows him, Robert Parrish, but you guys know him from the, from the Celtics. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew he started with us. Well, the first time we ran two-man game, 
you know, we didn't run a whole lot of two-man game at UCLA. We ran, you know, half-court sets, and we got good shots out of that. But two-man game, Coach Wooden always felt it was the pick-and-roll was more one-on-one basketball than, you know, team sets. So even though we knew how to run it, we didn't know how to manipulate it or execute it. Well, that guy was a great screen for me. So I would come off, and I remember the first time we started running it, I couldn't see the bucket. <laughs> I, when I came off that screen, Robert's head was always in the way because he's in you know, seven foot two. And I would come off and I try to shoot it. And he goes, What's wrong with you? I said, Robert, I can't see the bucket, man. Your head's in the way. He goes, Well, we're going to work on this. Let me tell you guys how you got to do this. If you take one step more, your shot's going to be gone. You got to shoot it right off my shoulder. If you can't see the bucket, then we're going to work on this. And by golly, he came and met me three hours before practice, that next practice. And all we worked on was me learning to jump, not see a target, see a target, let it go. Um, And it taught me, you know, how to shoot behind screens. Uh, So, I mean, I could tell you stories about a lot of different players Mm -hmm. uh, who really impacted. And I told you, I've been a a perpetual student of the game. I still am. Uh, But this was... uh, I'm not sure what year this is, but it was before JoJo came to us. So this might have been my rookie year. Rookie year, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So mm-hmm. that was my first year with, with Golden State. You know, that's the youngest team in basketball. So here's a funny story. This will tell you why nobody knew I was Filipino. Sports Illustrated came out with a with an article, right? And it said the Golden State Warriors, one of the youngest teams in the NBA. And what they were talking about is – that all the headlines said black coaching staff, 11 blacks and one white player and the youngest team in the NBA. Well, if you look at that picture, I'm not the white guy. Tom Abernathy from Indiana. Is the right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they said 11 blacks and one white player. So, I, you know, and that was put out on Sports Illustrated. So after that, you know, I, there was no way I was going to. And they were talking about how blacks dominated the game was the article and that we were one of the few teams that had 11 blacks and one white player. So I was destined, you know, that was going to be it. And then, you know, I still had a, what is it? A, what's a, what's a, I still had a Pongo then. I lost it now. I lost it playing against Real Madrid in Europe, and they gave me this nose, but I still had my oh. That was the only identity I had when I lost my, my pungon in, in Real Madrid in Spain. I, I literally, I told the nurse, I said, hey, you got to make this Filipino. It's my only identity. And then this is the one they gave me. You can never tell anymore. Can we yeah, get the, the, yeah. the lineup? Yeah. There's some guys that are that were amazing players here. Can we go yeah. through this lineup? Sure. Mm-hmm. Nate Williams. Okay, I'm going to start with me. Mm-hmm. Okay, and to my left is uh, I'm working my way. It would be facing and it's going to the right. Mm-hmm. Nate Williams was okay. uh, our guy off the bench, you know, one of the great players in the in the WNBA is a girl named Natalie Williams came from Nate Williams. Nate was a great shooter. I mean, just a spot up guy coming off could just shoot the lights out. Was not a big forward. He's only about six five. Phil okay. Smith, we talked about him. 
one of the greatest underrated athletes, right. you know, in, in, in the NBA, nine-time NBA All-Star, told you, uh, like a brother, mm -hmm. spent a time, a lot of time, hours and hours on end, watching film with him, playing with him. Sonny Parker, Texas A&M, about 6'6", one of my best friends to this day, mm -hmm. um, you know, could run the floor, had good mid-range, uh, didn't shoot the three often, but had great, could run the floor and get out on the break and hit mid-range, smart player, very mm -hmm. quick, good defender. John mm -hmm. Lucas, the, the epitome of a playmaker, right. didn't try to, you know, run anything. I think he was a three or four-time All-Star. Mm -hmm. We got him from Houston. Uh, then I got going up, going left now, I got Tom Abernathy. Tommy was just a role player that just didn't make mistakes. I always kidded him and told him, you know, we lost only three games my sophomore year, and two of them were to him. So I always joke around and said, hey, you know, I thought we were, you know, playing in Philly. It was us and you, and we were going to get it. You went undefeated. So I said just from that, just if I don't seem friendly to you, just know I'm in that moment thinking about how you stole another NCAA championship. I used to joke around with him. But great, great man, team player, role model. Purvis Short was one of my really good friends on the team. Him and the guy next to him, Wayne Cooper, we all came in together. Purvis, I think, was the fifth pick. I was the 21st. Wayne went high in the second round. So we were all rookies together when we came in. Purvis had that rainbow jumper. Yep, exactly. The high, the high one, right? Right. The really he high. He scored 57 points in the game later on. It could could shoot the lights out of it. And you know, didn't speak maybe 200 words the whole season. Just <laughs> and just did his job. I mean, just uh he is uh one of the head executives in the NBA, him and Kiki Vanderway. He's mm -hmm. in charge of a lot of the, the retired players. Uh association with with you know getting involved in community and things of that nature uh wayne cooper just role player that did his job six foot eleven could shoot the turnaround yeah. jumper robert Parrish, i don't need to speak about the chief uh <laughs> i remember he wrote a book he told me hey i'm gonna write a book and i just want to let you know i'm writing about when we were in chicago and everybody left and we told uh we told everybody to lock the locker room that we were the last ones out and you were locked in there for about four hours that was <laughs> he, he did that. I was in the locker room for about four hours before somebody let me out. Um, good friend of mine, him and Clifford Ray were good friends to this day. Clifford, you know, stays in touch with the family. Do uh, you know what's amazing? And then uh, ah, the last guy, I reckon it's Wesley. What's the last name? Wes Wesley. I know he came from a small college and made our team. He made our team. Uh, he made our team, and it was just, he was a guy that would just grind and, and scramble. was wasn't a great shooter. wasn't But his heart made our team. Uh, Joe Roberts was Al Adels. I went to his uh -huh. uh, his Hall of Fame celebration not long ago. Saw uh -huh. Gary Payton. Saw. Uh, Jason Kidd, uh, Sonny, and I were there from the team. I'm trying to think who else might have been there. Sonny and I showed up for that. Um, Coach Roberts was there. Frank and, Frank and Muley was our owner. He's the one with the beard. Scotty Sterling, who was our GM, became a GM for the Kings later. Uh, and the other guy's the doctor. Dick D'Oliva, one of the great trainers. Uh, see him often. 
So that was my rookie year. Raymond, I, I got the name. It's Wesley Cox. Wesley Cox. Yes, sir. Did he play? Yes. Did he play? He played, I said it was uh, Did he play at Louisville. Louisville, yeah, you got it. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't a small college. It was a major. So, uh, yeah, but Wesley isn't, just uh, isn't Sonny Parker the father of Jabari Parker? Yes, yes, mm -hmm. that's okay. Jabari's dad, and uh, mm -hmm. you know Jabari's had quite a career, and Sonny's been you know uh, really supportive in a lot of ways with Jabari understanding the ropes of the NBA. What kind of a coach was Al Adels? Al Adels? Yeah. What kind of a oh, coach? I think, well, you know, every coach has their thing. Coach Wooden was a coach that was about knowledge. Gene Bartow was about the power game and, and understood the game. Gary Cunningham was just like Coach Wooden. First year I played was Al Adels. Al Adels, what we call a player's coach. Because he played for so many years, he, he understood the, a player's psyche. Like he never yo-yo you. But he also understood he ran the team and your ego wasn't getting involved with him running the team. So you did what he said. Uh, everybody respected Al, uh, had knowledge of the game, knew the game defensively like no other, um, treated us fair, uh, was honest with us. Um, you know, I enjoyed playing with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, he to this day, I stay in touch with 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 coach. Um, mm -hmm. The year after, I, my next coach was uh, John Ramsey or uh, Coach Ramsey up at Portland. Uh, and Coach Ramsey, he was all about fast break, secondary break, transition basketball. So it's kind of funny how every coach that I came in contact through my NBA, I was with Portland. Portland traded me to Indiana. And then it was Jack, Jack McKinney uh, over at uh, Indiana. Um uh, who I played for there uh, when I was in Brazil was Edvar Simoas, the Olympic coach from Brazil. When I was in Italy was Valerio Bianchini. Uh, the two years I was there, he was the Olympic coach for Italy. So I have been fortunate to play for great people and every one of them had different philosophies. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then of course, like? yeah. go ahead, go ahead, Sid, go ahead, Sid. Sid? No. Yeah, I just want to ask, what was your rookie year in the NBA like? Was it, were there any surprises? It was, uh, man, it was frustrating. <laughs> we, were, we were the youngest team. I don't think I lost more than 10 games. I didn't lose 10 games in four years at UCLA. <laughs> and then I get to Golden State, I think we lost 40-some games. It was frustrating. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was frustrating. It, it, it was not fun. I hated sitting on the bench after starting and you had to learn how to come off the bench. I remember I used to have drills, you know, Phil told me this, he goes, Hey, let me tell you a drill that I had to do when I first came in the league. I said, okay. He goes, go sit down. So I sat on the bench on the sideline. He said, I'm going to blow the whistle. When I blow it, get on the court, sprint down. I'm going to throw you the ball, shoot a jumper. I said, okay. So he had me doing that. And I said, You know, I said after, you know, about 25 times, I said, Phil, why, why am I doing it? He goes, because this is what you do. You get on, you sit on the bench, you get pulled in the game, you got to run down, you got to hit some jumpers. If you don't hit the jumpers, you're going to sit back down. Right. So he goes, you better get used to coming in the game cold, taking a look and knocking down jumpers. Because he goes, that's going to be your role. He goes, that's, you're backing me up. He goes, and if I get tired, you're going to play for me. And he goes, when I'm not tired, he goes, you're going to sit. He goes, that's your role. 
And it, it was a hard thing. And it, it wasn't until my second year when he got injured and I had to start that I really enjoyed NBA basketball. I enjoyed it, but it just – it was very difficult. It's difficult coming off the bench when you're one of the best players in America, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But how, how tough is the competition in the NBA compared to, you know, your, your career at the NCAA? Is it really so much better because you've got the best of the best? Exactly. The, the level – you know, I, I always tell my young players, you know, in high school, you could take a good look and get open and hit a jumper. When you get to college, you got a little more time. It's a little bit quicker. You get to the NBA, you get a peak. P-E-E-K, like peekaboo. You get a peak. And if you don't shoot and convert in that peak, you're not going to play. Right. So you've really got to train yourself and train your mind of when do I get the peak? I'm a great shooting coach because I understand those things because I've been there. I always tell players, you know, they say, well, you know, I'm being trained by this guy, you know, who's teaching me shooting. Well, when the kid comes to me, I, I don't want to ever disrespect any coach that's teaching kids because that's an honorable thing. But when I see the mechanics that that the kid has, and the kid comes and watches all my players shoot. And then he says, I want to do that. I said, well, you better go back to your shooting coach and make sure it's okay that you start seeing me. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, he goes, I know what your shot did for you and your career. He goes, would it be rude to ask what his shot did for his career? I said, no, <laughs> you shouldn't ask that. Because <laughs> there's a lot of players who don't understand shooting. And they right. didn't play at the levels I played. So they wouldn't understand peak mentality. They wouldn't understand how to create space. They wouldn't understand how to set things up. They wouldn't understand how to counter when somebody stops you. You don't understand those things till you play at that level and you understand the quickness involved. Then you can speak to it. You can't read about that. You can't read about that and teach somebody out of red knowledge. You've got to have some kind of, so I think, and I know there's a big discussion and, and we'll all agree, some NBA players are horrible coaches, but there are some players who are great coaches because of their experience. Mm -hmm. So, right, right. Uh, you know, you take a guy like Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr understood his role and did it to a T. Mm -hmm. Great coach, great strategist, can take a lot of egos, put them together on the court and, and, and you know, handle it. Uh, great respect for Steve Kerr. I think you got some great young coaches, the kid of Boston. Um, Yes. Great coach. I think Nick Nurse is a great coach, but I think, you know, the kid of Boston is one of the best minds that I've ever seen when I watch games. Brad Stevens. Yep, Brad Stevens. He does one from Butler and, you know, he did wonderful things with without talent, but he had he had talented players, but he didn't have he didn't have the best talent in the nation and still mm -hmm. made them great. You know, always competitive and always, you know, doing well. So, these are these yeah. are funny pictures. So whenever I tell players, so I don't know what I was doing against Boston. It looked like I got juked. <laughs> Guy caught me flat-footed. So uh, that's when I was playing. I believe I was with Indiana. That was with the Pacers. Yeah. Second picture, I always talk about mm -hmm. players. Uh, players ask me, I said, you got to – the difference between college and pros. So college players, they play to beat you. Pro players play to a spot. We play to a space where we can get our peak. And, you know, I use these pictures. I use this picture especially. I said, do you guys realize the guy behind me, uh, Tree Rollins. Tree Rollins. Mm -hmm. Tree Rollins is seven foot two. 
7-3. The guy in front of me, his name is Danny Roundfield, 6-11. And right. the guy to my left played at Kentucky. Um, his name? Left Jack hand. Gibbons. Jack Gibbons. Jack Gibbons. Great player. About six, 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 seven. Mm -hmm. He was. They always put bigger guards on me because they thought you know a bigger guard on me would change my shot. Um, but I said, look at everybody's feet. I caught Jack flat-footed. The two big guys weren't even ready to jump, so I had my peak. And I said, when you are a great shooter you treasure your peaks and you learn how to, how to seek them out. You don't try to beat people. You play to space, you play to spots and that's NBA basketball. It's different than college. And, you know, TR Dunn against Portland. Mm -hmm. You know, I met TR when I got to Portland and uh, you know, he, was, he was a great defensive player and they tried to, you know, have him. This is my second year when I was starting. And, you know, you don't have the whole picture, but the ball was already gone, you know. Uh -huh. And I used to I used to have fun with my kids I, I, I train with now where I train. And I always tell them, it's okay if guys are close, but they're late. So I said I used right. to have a little joke. When I shot and I knew it was going to go, you just know, I'd be late. I would, wouldn't be cocky. I'd just say late. And it's shh. It would go, and, and, and they knew what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's all about getting your shot off. That's exactly. And you know what? There's an art to that. I mean, you know, I think a lot of kids jump too high. I think players are trying to perfect shots, trying to shoot at the peak of their jump. Great shooters don't jump high. We get it off. You know, mm -hmm. you look at the greatest shooters, Steph Curry, Bradley Beal. I can go down the list. A they're, they're jumping maybe this high off the ground. They get it off. While you're still standing or you're on one foot, you know, I think you rarely do you see great jump shooters jump at the top of their mm -hmm. height and do that unless they get in the paint and they're jumping against a 6'10 guy. It's, it's crazy, Raymond, that you mentioned that about the, the great shooters getting their shot off and everything. I looked at our, our feed here on, on the Facebook Live and one of the greatest Filipino shooters ever just, just uh, tuned in to watch. His name is Alan Kaidik. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Uh, but of course, I know Alan. He's, he's a lefty. One of the great, great shooters in, in in the Philippines. I know exactly who he is, and he had such a mind. His his game was all about man. His IQ. I've seen him play a few times. You know, he was all about. He could get you any way he wanted to because he knew how to. Mm -hmm. And he came in an era there was a three point line already, you know, unlike you. And this guy would use it as a weapon, really, <laughs> the way yeah. that. NBA guys do now, you yeah. know, so that's his yeah. thing, and he's watching right there. Yeah. So. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah, I have a question. Sorry, Raymond. You were number 11 when you were with the Warriors. Did you ever coach, uh, did you ever try to teach that current number 11 of the Warriors how to get that shot off? Who? The current number 11 of the Warriors right now. Who's the current number 11 of the Warriors now? Sorry, am I? Clay Thompson. Thompson. You know, I <laughs> story about Clay. I know Clay really well, and uh, Michael Thompson and I were good friends. He was at Portland when I got there, and Clay was just a tyke. He was like, you know. But I'm going to tell you something about Clay. Clay is so fundamental. And, you know, he, he, he revived uh, a college, you know, at Washington State that, that truly needed somebody to lift it. And I tell you, they – I mean, it doesn't matter wherever we went, UCLA, we, we, filled, the, we filled the arenas because we were the big thing to beat. But Clay Thompson turned around Washington State University basketball. And 
when I watch him today, I always tell a lot of my players, watch this young man's footwork. Watch how he will get you in the air because he's such a great shooter, and he'll just find another window. He gets another peak. He's just so sound of a player. You know, great, great respect. He's got good size. And I'm really happy and excited to see him get back to playing because uh, it was a tragedy, you know, what happened to him in the playoffs. But knowing who Clay is, He's going to turn around and be be better than you know he was before. That's who he I is. I was thinking. I was thinking maybe Clay wore the number eleven because of you, but I have no. no I'd like to think <laughs> have a, no. I'm not, not, like, I'm not nice. that guy. No. All right. All right. Yeah. You were talking about Steve Kerr earlier, uh, Raymond. I, I just remembered he also. I read a story about him, and uh, he went through that similar similar drill that you did. You know, coming off the bench and getting ready to shoot. Uh, and it was actually Chip Engeland who uh, helped him run that drill. Uh, I think they would be talking in a in an empty gym, and then Chip would suddenly say, "Okay, get up, get up! I'm gonna throw you the ball." Uh, you know, things like that. Because uh, at that time, I think Steve was already he was a bit of Spurs already, so he he was working with Chip Engeland, the shooting coach, and he wasn't getting enough playing time, and he, he couldn't get into enough of a rhythm right. whenever Pop would send him in. So. Uh, Chip ran that very same drill that that you went through. So you uh, you were I think you're you know, sort of a pioneer when it comes to that. I'll tell you a story about Steve. So Steve Kerr was in high school and used to come in and rebound for me, and didn't really know this. And I didn't know until I saw Steve about two or three years ago. I was doing a Filipino Heritage Night event, and he came through and he gave me a big old hug. He goes, "Man, let me just tell you." He goes, when I was growing up, he goes, I rebounded for you at Poly. He says, you were my idol. He said, you had wow. a stroke. He goes, your stroke was so pure. Wow. He goes, I wanted to shoot like you. And he goes, you were nails out, lights out, and gave me a big old hug. And, you know, see, you don't realize whose lives you're impacting during your journey. You That's just right. don't. And when he gave me that hug, you know, it was it was genuine. And uh, it made me feel good because this is somebody who had a great career that honored my work ethic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and then I ran into Kevin Johnson, remember KJ. Of course. I ran into yeah. Kevin Johnson sure. at a Cal Berkeley game. I was doing Filipino Heritage Night at Cal Berkeley. And uh, he happened to be there. And we sat together and we talked and shared a lot of stories. And one of the stories he sent is he goes, you know what? I want to tell you, you came to the park this light skin, you know, black dude with Afro. Everybody was talking about who you were. He goes, and, and so we played up and down. He goes, you just dominated everybody. He goes, but after I asked if I could shoot with you, he goes, you told me that the bank shot's the best shot ever and that you should really learn how to use the board. He goes, and this was a half moon backboard. He goes, you went out and you started at 10 feet, then you went to 12, then you went to 15, 18. And the next thing you know, you were standing outside the three. He goes, you must have hit 36 straight. And while you're doing that, you were talking to me about form and about repetition, repetition, repetition. He goes, and you know what? After that, that day at the park, I went home to my mom and dad and said, hey, I met a guy. I'm going to be just like him. I'm going to play in the NBA. And he wow. gave me the secrets to get there. No idea. Wow. That Kevin Johnson was the same guy I'm sitting next to, and you're hearing these stories. And I was only in Sacramento 
for a day or two. I was visiting some family members and I was there and I was looking for a park to play at. And that's the park somebody gave me. But, you know, in your journey, you just never know how God's going to use you to to lift somebody else up beyond their capabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's the greatest part of our journey when we are successful and we finally get there. It's the it's the people that you've impacted that you don't even know about that keeps your legacy moving on. Right. Right. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to show another mm-hmm. photo here, uh, Raymond. It's uh, your story is inspiring all of us. Oh. Now, this was <laughs> in 1979. Remember this that was, when you got yeah. over? Yeah, uh, that was our, played four our games, four games in the PBA. Yeah, this is a, I believe this is Larry McNeil with you and your brother uh, trying to double team him. That yes. must have been a tough assignment yeah. right there. You know what? Uh, really enjoyed that trip. It gave me a little bit of a, a, an understanding. I got to meet my family. We have family on uh, on uh, we have family in Quezon City. All right, <laughs> it's uh, on Howie Street. Banawe, Banawe, where the auto, auto, all the auto park store, all the right, auto right. park stores are. We live <laughs> yeah. right across the street. And I got to meet my family in Banawe Street in Quezon City. And I got a, a chance to meet, you know, uh, at that time it was President Marcos and, and his wife, uh, Imelda. And yeah, I got a chance to see Ta'al. I mean, so many things. But at that time, the NBA wouldn't let us travel as a team. So we, right. we, we just got Warriors, and right while we, while we were there, they just traded Jamal Wilkes to the Lakers. But I had Jamal, I think. I think I had Clifford. Uh, yeah, Clifford was here. I'm not sure if Sonny was with us. Um, but anyway, I had a, a few of our, our Warrior teammates, and uh, uh, was a fun trip. And I learned a lot about the PBA, uh, got a chance to meet some great legends, uh, legends. I'm talking about great men of basketball who, you know, are honored and esteemed in their in their home country as well as around the world. Uh, Jaworski and and Fernandez and Co. You know, I could go down the list of. I'm uh-huh. sure Alan Alan can relate because probably while he was growing up, he was watching these guys, you know, tear it up night in and night out. They were like the Michael Jordans of the PBA. That's right. um, and so. Uh, and I know this is probably going to get into a place of why you're probably going to, this is probably going to segue into why do I, I not think there has been a Filipino born NBA player. I know we're going to probably discuss that because I was prepared for it, but right, it was right. a chance for me to meet some really, really great players at the time. And I don't, I didn't realize this. I kind of had a bullseye on my, I probably had a bullseye on my chest being a Filipino and being NBA. So I thought the game was pretty physical when we went back there and it didn't, <laughs> it didn't bother me cause I'm a physical player. Um, but, uh, it, it, uh, it was a great trip that opened my eyes to my home country and, and the love of basketball that the Philippine people have for this great game. Who, who, who made the arrangements for that, for you guys to come over? Uh, this you wasn't know, your idea at the time, right? Golly, um, I wanted to get back to the Philippines and, and, you know, meet, you know, the people and, uh, you know, they did all kinds of television interviews. You know, one of the guys who was very instrumental was Joaquin Henson. Hmm. Kinito. Uh, Kinito. Kinito. Yeah. His nickname is Kinito. 
Oh, Kenito. I, I was yeah, watching yeah. him for me. Yeah, well, but he, he was big. Uh, we had a guy named, I think his name was Raleigh Pajilan. Pangilan. Mm -hmm. Pangilan. I think mm -hmm. Raleigh is the one who contacted me and said he wanted to make the Warriors and do the trip. And I know it was kind of funny because Raleigh kind of ran the trip, but when we got there, Clifford took it over. <laughs> Clifford just said, nah, man, I'm on this. So he kind of set up our schedules. And Clifford. So Clifford was meeting with one of your great owners at that time who was behind the scenes doing a lot of the work. But Clifford mm -hmm. became friends with him and uh, ended up, you know, having a, having a good trip. And it, it was uh, – you know, it was a it was a trip. It was an exhibition. It was. Uh, I hope the people liked it. I don't, you know, mm -hmm. remember if they liked it, if they didn't like it. I know. Um, I know a lot of times we were criticized for not having a lot of the Warriors. You know, at that mm -hmm. time the NBA wasn't allowing. You know, like now, you're yeah, getting right. NBA teams. You know, going because the game wasn't global then, like it mm -hmm. is. Now. But had, had you been to had you been to the, the to the Philippines prior to that, or was that your first trip over here? No, that was that was the first time I was meeting my family. So that I think that was my very first trip. Now I've been back there maybe four or five times, but I I, I go in there. You know, I'm at a point in my life. You know, I don't want to. Now I am going to get back there in a major stage, because from what I understand, the NBA Asia wants to bring me back and kind of. You know, make it official and do all of that. And I, you know, my thing with NBA Asia, I said, you know, I don't need to be official. You know, I passed on the torch to Jordan Clarkson. You know, um, although I would like to meet Jordan sometime, and uh, you know, say hello. And I, I know I've met some of your great basketball players. Uh, you know, I've met uh, Parks. I met him down in the summer league in Nevada. I met Kobe Paras. Uh, when he was at Northridge, I was training for the Northridge players at the time. They're four of their better players, and Kobe was there. And I even told Kobe. And then Rivera, uh, Kiefer, Ravina. Kiefer, Ravina. Ravina, yeah. yeah. Kiefer, yeah. Ravina. Ravina. Yeah. Have, Kiefer. You met, have you met that seven-foot-two kid that we have over there now? Um, his Kai, name is Kai Soto. Soto. Yeah. No, my brother talked to me about him. You know, my brother coaches over at Kansas with Bill Self. So my brother was asking me a little bit. I don't know enough about Kai. I mean, you see things on social media, you know, of how they're developing him, and he's supposed to be the next NBA. But they're talking about Jalen Green getting there before him. Uh -huh. uh, you That's know, a big Jaylen, chance. Jalen's going to be, you know, the next Filipino superstar. Yeah, there's and, another kid uh, by the name of Kamaka yeah. Hepa. Have you heard of this guy, Kamaka Hepa? Have you heard of him? Yeah. Um, it's about where, six, where eight, does he six, go to nine. school? He's a Texas, um, I think. Yeah, yeah Texas. Yeah, he plays like Nowitzki. He's like six eight six nine. Plays like Nowitzki. Is he? And he's he's Pinoy. Yeah, he's, he's like uh, one fourth Pinoy. Okay, so he's kind of like Robinson Pinoy. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, is he like Nate? Uh, I don't know. Nate's, 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 Nate's Pinoy. Like one eight, I think, right? Oh, one eight. Robinson. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. He told me. He told me. He goes, "Yeah, me and you, man. I eat. I eat lumpia." <laughs> okay. But then I gave, that's him, a, I gave him a hug. I said, "Okay, pare." You know? Okay, pare. <laughs> so, you, you ended your NBA career in 1982 uh, yeah. after you played for the Pacers. Then you decided to take your your act to to Europe. And how was that well, experience? You know what? I, I just didn't want to be a journeyman that didn't play. I didn't want to be that guy. 
I didn't care as long as I made some decent money and I got a chance to play. So, oh, that's the Alberta Dusters. I, I got, let me see. That was, I had to play CBA, a month, right? a month CBA. and a half in, in the CBA. Hmm? Yes, it was the CBA. I had to play a month, a month and a half before Indiana picked me up. Okay. So that was the year that I got released. And no, I got released from the Dallas Mavericks, which I should have, oh. I should have made their team, but they told me it's a business and I made too much money and they were going to keep three guys that make what I make because they were going to lose their first season. And that's what I heard from the head coach. That's a whole nother story. We won't go there. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get PTSD. On the video. How crazy, how crazy was the CBA? Cause we've, we've heard a lot of crazy stories from Phil. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? The funny thing about it was I, I started with, it, it was a great journey for me only because I didn't like the league. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to be there. Number one, I played, but I'm going to tell you what was worth it. George Carl. Okay. That's who my coach was originally with the Montana golden nuggets. I think it was right. And because myself and Willie Anderson were doing it, they thought they could get more players. So I got sent to the Alberta dusters who weren't very good. Ended up averaging like 28 a game. I didn't like the league. Um, not that it wasn't good. I just, you know, it wasn't my type of, of league. It was it was an NBA uh, sideshow. It was supposed to be developed players. We never really got to play the teams back east. We we're only on the west coast. It just, you know, just wasn't my cup of tea. Um, I enjoyed Alberta. I was in Lethbridge. I met Canadians. Uh, learned. I, I met one of my really good friends who I used to stay with. He was an uh, Olympic Canadian sharpshooter for the Olympic team. Uh, we learned to make bullets, went and shot clay ducks. And uh, so it, I had good memories there because I had to stay out of the country to make my money tax-free from Europe. So there were a lot of positives that came out of it. But, uh, you know, it was a part of my career um, that I made the best of it and try to keep going and keep playing. And I was one leading scorers in the league. But like I said, it, it was something that I, I – uh, it was a time in my life. It was uh, I had to get mentally tough and endure it and and make the best of it. Right. Well, this, the the afro was uh, still there at least. Yeah, I, still, <laughs> I didn't have daughters yet. <laughs> it's, it's the mustache, really. A lot a lot of the people are commenting on our feed, right? Yeah. The mustache, you know, it's, it's really it was your signature back then. Well, I think everybody had mustaches back then. You look at the NBA. Everybody, you know, if you look at that old Golden State Warrior picture, they yeah. probably. Yeah. Eight of the 12 probably had mustaches. So I think it was a thing to do in the league, you know. Uh -huh. It was something that we all did. Okay. Next, Let's next. Check one. out the next one. Oh, oh this I, one. That's my boy. Yes. <laughs> Big step. Yeah. Man, great player, great, great person, great heart, uh, ultimate professional. Um, I tell you how you learn about people. Can can be the star anywhere no matter where he goes. Kevin Durant came to the team. He didn't necessarily try to overshadow or overtake. He became part of the team. Probably gave up more shots than he really wanted to, but he gave it up for the good of the team. Shows you the kind of guy he is. He's all about team first, nice. you know, him second. And as much as the accolades, I tell you what I truly love about him. 
I'm sure there were a lot of people when he was younger that told him he wouldn't make it. So I can relate. A lot of people told me I wouldn't make it. And you know what? You persevere and you overcome and you become the great. Well, trust me, I'm not like him, but I understand the journey of overcoming everything to get where he's at. And uh, he brings a smile to my face every time I see him. Uh, he's good to my family. Uh, actually laid his hand on my daughter's, my eldest daughter's baby. Blessed her. Uh, bless my, my, my grandson. Uh, good man. Good man. I enjoy seeing him every time. We don't see each other often, but when I do get to see him. Although I've been trying to get, I told him I'm, I swing a pretty mean golf club. Uh -huh. Even though I'm, I'm a lot older, I want to I want to get out there and hit some. So we're going to get out soon. We'll right. Out. Have you have, have you had a shooting contest with his dad at least? No, you know I don't see Dale that often. I don't, you know, now that I'm older, I only go to the Filipino Heritage Nights. I go to a few games. I, I'm not really big into crowds, and uh, um, when I I do go, I go to maybe four, eight games, and basically I go to see. Uh, you know, Steve, I go to see Clay. Uh, I talk to my, my fellow uh, UCLA guys that are over there, um, you know, just to keep the Bruin tradition and family and, and let them know. Uh, any Kansas players, like the year the Kansas kid was there, a few, you know, he was there for a few. Um, I go down there to stay in touch, you know, for my brother with their players. Um, uh, Brandon Rush was there, I think he was from Kansas. Yeah, was. yeah so uh, from that standpoint, but I, I'm not huge on crowds. I'm really close to Raymond Ritter uh, with the Warriors and, you know, love that man and love what he does for the Golden State Warriors. So whenever he asks me to do whatever I have to do to promote the Warriors or the Filipino people, you know, I'm right there. Can we let's, let's, let's discuss, Raymond, uh, rounding out your career in Europe. Uh, you had a lot of experiences there, I'm sure. And, and you know, when you talk about Europe, you talk about guys like Jellybean Bryant and all these guys, Mike D'Antoni going over there. And then and you had your share of playing in, in, in Italy. Is that right? Yeah, I played in Italy. And the first time I met Mike D'Antoni, he was the big point guard, you know, playmaking guard who had the big reputation um, for Milan. They played for CMAC. <laughs> And I was in Bunkery Roma. We had a, a big reputation. We were one of the top probably five, six teams in, in all of Europe. I remember our first game we were going to play at uh, at Milan. Milan always dominates the the Italian Basketball League first division. They got Dino Meneghin. They had all these these great Italian names. And D'Antoni was the director, the, the captain of it, of it all. So I was looking forward to playing with him because I – you know, great respect for him, but I knew I was quicker. I knew it was bigger at the time. And at that time, uh, Bunker Roma, we, we had uh, Bruce Flowers, who played with the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, went to the mm -hmm. University of Notre Dame. Um, we had uh, Fulvio Policello, Enrico Gilardi, Marco Sofrini. I mean, we had four Olympic basketball players. So one of them had to come off the uh, bench. But when I got there, we were – pretty formidable, you know, foe. We beat D'Antoni. I think I had 27 against him the first game, and I think I had 24, 25. I averaged about 25 a game. And it was the first year when I came in, the three-point – and the three-pointer was like <laughs> a college three, you know. Oh, okay. And so it was not – it was like a free throw for us. 
So I was like the third leading scorer and had nice battles with Dan Tony. Um, you know, no disrespect. I think he's had a great career, great coach. But at the time when we played, you know, we ended up in first place. They ended up in second. And then we ended up losing the playoffs. They ended up winning the title that year. Um, but we didn't lose to them. We lost to a – and, you know, got upset by another team. Uh, they, they, Our big guys fouled out with 12 minutes to go, and it just was ridiculous <laughs> the way we lost. We had no big men, and I was trying to trying to carry everybody against, you know, pretty good players. Um, but a great, great experience. Italian basketball is the epitome. We average about 14,000 a game, uh, over 20,000 during the European Cup. Um, great experience. Uh, one of the best basketball experiences ever. Great people, Italian people. Um, learned how to become a great Italian cook. What I would do is I go into <laughs> restaurants. <laughs> if I liked the plate, I really liked it. I'd go in the back and offer to bring the family of the cook, him, bring him in the locker room, do everything. As long as he'd show me that recipe. Mm -hmm. so, I get I'm all partner. of them in the game. So you're a cook. Hey, so hey, I learned how to make some really nice Italian dishes. But uh, do you make Filipino dishes as well? Yes, yes. In fact, I had pawns it the other night. I, well, I do my pawns a little different because I mix the chicken and shrimp. But you know, I have all the veggies. <laughs> no, that happens here too. And I use yeah. Everybody has their own. I'm learning that everybody kind of has their own recipe. But I did make pawns it the other day. Um, you know, I'm not real, real big on, uh, on uh, you know, I like the dinaguan, but I have to make it different than other people. And I like the adobo. You know, I have a classic a traditional adobo recipe from my mom. And then there's, uh, God, what starts with an S. It's like a soup. Sinigang. Uh, Sinigang. Yes. There you go. Sinigang. But I make my own Sinigang. There's a little bit of a, you know, like now there's fusions. You have Filipino fusion. Right, right. Right. So, but we still do a lot of that. Uh, still, still eat, you know, still carry on my mom's traditions and carrying it on my grandchildren now. So make sure the fact I'm, when I get back to the Philippines in either March or April, they're coming. I want to make sure they know where their heritage is. Cause that's what was done. That's my Auntie Letty and uncle Frank, you know, took me through our whole heritage all the way back to Virginia Morelia, who, you know, at the time, gave the ships to the Filipino people that helped their independence against Spain. You know, mm -hmm. people don't understand. So they took me back all the way in history of who my family yeah. and my roots were. So I was fortunate. But it's, you know, it's amazing. When you talk to Filipino young people here in America, you know, I always tell them one of the key things when I talk to youth um, here in America, especially Filipino groups, I talked about the importance of knowing who sacrificed for them to have the opportunity to get their educations and their opportunity to success. Somebody came over from the Philippines that gave them the opportunity to live in this wonderful nation and have the entrepreneurial opportunities to have successful lives. So I always, because it was done for me, you know, challenged them to find out who, because most of the kids I talked to for whatever reason, they don't know about their true heritage, where they came from, who came over that started this whole journey for them to be successful here in America. So I think it's something that's really important if there's any Filipino young people you know, watching this in America, 
find out who sacrificed for you to have the opportunity you had. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Great. Great. Actually, you're just talking about Filipino, uh, Filipino heritage. I think our next picture, we'll talk about Filipino heritage night. Um, this is, uh, of course, a picture of you being given your honorary jersey. See, it's supposed to be Thompson, but it says Townsend on the jersey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, what, what was it like now coming back to the Warriors and, of course, in, being, a, being now a, front, a, a trailblazer? for uh, what we call a Filipino Heritage Night, which we've had for a very long time. Well, you know, uh, when Filipino Heritage Night started, it started with Golden State. And then what I did is I went to the NBA offices and I talked to them. I said, you know, you only have a few cities. I said, let me, just give me three cities. Let me show you what we can get going, that we can make this big. I, you know, I want to make Filipino Heritage Night. You know, it's the number one sport in the Philippines. You have so many NBA Filipinos all around the world that love the NBA. So they gave me, you know, obviously Golden State, Sacramento, and they gave me the LA Clippers, um, you know, down south. And then they gave me back east. It was Brooklyn. Who was it? It was Brooklyn, Atlanta, and Orlando, because Orlando has a huge Filipino-American population. And so that was my first year we started. I think it was back in 2008. It was 12 or 13 years ago, 2007. And, uh, you know, I put together and I kind of wanted to do something where when we ran Filipino Heritage Night, I wanted the beginning act to be some kind of Filipino heritage, like Tanikling Dance or mm -hmm. some kind of, you know, something traditional, you know, something that's traditional with our people, with dance. Halftime, I wanted to give, there's a lot of, if you understand, there's a lot of, you know, because of Jabberwocky and some of them, there's a lot of these dance groups in colleges, or there's a lot of young Filipino singers. So I wanted the halftime to be um, something where we're promoting Filipino entertainment through our young people to give them opportunity to get their name out. And the end of the game was a meet and greet where you got a chance to meet me and talk to me and you know, that was not the highlight of the night, but that was the end. And pre the pre-meeting, I always had some kind of singer who nobody heard of would come in and I'd introduce him or her and they'd do their thing. And then I'd talk and welcome all the people to. The... So I started with this prototype of what it did. And now you look at the NBA and there's 20 cities and, you know, uh -huh. and, you know, I get invited to most of them. And uh, this year, I you know wanted to do uh, Toronto is the one I'm, mm -hmm. I'm uh, wanted to get highlighted in and Toronto and but you know Orlando still has it Atlanta, I want to get to Brooklyn, you know there's a lot of Filipinos in New York, mm -hmm. so uh, you know what it, it's carried on and it's still going strong. In fact, Golden State's doing two a year, um, so I'm very grateful to have been somebody who was at the initial planning stages of that. And whether I get credit or not, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I know the Filipino people are now up close and personal with the NBA. And I know I had a lot to do with the, the vision of that, getting that done. So I'm grateful for that. I think we still have one more picture to show. I think this was uh, uh, the Heritage Night, one of the Heritage Night things where, well, here, this is actually a picture of you with a former one of the best uh, imports that ever played at the PBA. His name is Sean Chambers. 
And Big of course, Ray, Ray Park. Yeah, Ray, yeah. Ray Parks. Yes. Who, uh, son of Bobby. It was the first time I, I saw him play. And uh, Sean and I sat together and we were talking because we have a lot of mutual friendships. And when we when I was talking, you know, I, I was hoping he was going to, you know, get a shot at making it. And, you know, I kind of let him know. I said, listen, I said, I can help you. I said, man, I'm telling you, I shoot better at 65. I'm 64. I'll be 65. I said, I shoot better at 64 than a lot of players still. I said, I can help you with your jumper. If you can get an outside jumper the way you go to the hole, I said, you'll make a lot of teams. But until you get an outside jumper, and I'm talking about when it's automatic, talk about when you get a look and a peek, it's done. They just look at you and they can see the way, you know, NBA, a lot of it is look. You know, you talk about the eye test. A lot of it's an eye test. If you don't look like you can shoot, then guess what? You can't shoot. And, you know, it's just the way the NBA is. And uh, when I saw him play, I just kind of whispered in his ear. I said, hey, call me. But, you know, a lot of young kids, it's like, um, you know, there's a lot of ego involved. I've been a perpetual student, but a lot of, a lot of people, you know, they – I don't know. Sometimes they get offended when you're talking like that because they see it as you don't have a shot when really what they need to need to do is they need to embrace it because somebody sees something in you. But there's one part missing to complete your journey. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes and maybe I need a little lesson and, you know, be a little bit more diplomatic. You know, I don't have a lot of time to talk to people. So when I get in there, you know, he's being interviewed by news and everything. So I had a minute. So I gave him my number and said, hey, look, it, I said, I did that to Kiefer Ravina. I did that to Kobe Paras, and I did that to Bobby Ray. And maybe if I was in the Philippines or Manila, maybe they'd hook me up or look me up and do that. Because I always told him, you can come and stay with me. Stay in my house and we'll go in for a week. You know, you don't have to do anything. Just stay in my house and work out six hours a day, three hours in the morning, three hours in the evening, put in six hours, let me get you right. So mm -hmm. I've, I've made, you know, I've made the effort to get it out there. And, uh, you know, I just waiting for somebody to, to give me a call and, and say, okay, I'm going to take you up on that, you know, Raymond. So. Mm -hmm. This great. is in 2016, right? Or 2015 when, uh, Ray was playing in the, uh, yeah, he's playing with the, with the Mavericks, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, Texas Legends. Yeah, and they, you know that you know that uh, the reporter, don't you? Isn't she ABS CBN reporter? Can we see the picture again? I don't. Um, I didn't. Maybe she's I didn't recognize. Maybe yeah. Maybe one of the U.S. bureau reporters. Yeah. U.S. correspondents, probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She she's the one. Wherever I I see her at all, the ABS CBN you know telecast for things. Okay. Wow. Yeah, we had okay, Sean so, on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Amazing. I, I have a question, Raymond. Yeah. How has uh, how has being Pinoy helped you or hampered you in any way throughout your whole career? Well, um, when I told people I was Filipino, it never really hampered my career. It just kind of made me put a fire in me because when I told him I was Filipino, you know, the thing they say about Filipinos, we're too small. We're, we're not big enough. You know, that, that, you know, you hear that all the time about Filipinos. So 
all it did is it just lighted a fire inside of me to get me to to get better you know and and if people thought those things how do i change the 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 opinions about who i am as a player so really didn't hamper me it just made me more hungry You said that you wanted to talk about why a Filipino hasn't made it to the NBA yet. Uh, I'm really curious because Filipinos, the, uh, they're, they've grown all over the world. Basketball has grown all over the world. And the Filipinos have also evolved into the new way basketball is played. So why haven't we seen the Filipino in the NBA yet? Well, I, I, I speak this candidly and I speak this with grace. Um, you know, you had a lot of great PBA players. And, you know, so... For me, it was very hard for to to have a PBA player who has phenomenal ability, is one of the greatest players that will play in the history of the Philippines, put his reputation on the line and come to the United States and, and maybe not make an NBA team. Because then the rest of his life is going to say, oh, one of the greatest players in the PBA history, but got cut by the whoever. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants that attached to your legacy. So I don't think you were going to get a a PBA player that was making really good money to put his reputation online and trying to make the the, the NBA. So the next step was, how are we going to get a young player from the Philippines to get to the United States and play? So I've always said this from the get-go. You've got to get a Filipino-born player at 14 or 15 years old to get over to America, play against some of the best talented players in America, Go to a major, Kansas, North Carolina, Kentucky, you know, one of these majors, Oregon, West Coast, Gonzaga, Arizona. Go to a major university, play for at least two years, three years, earn your reputation. Everybody's going to see you. And from there, make make it and get an opportunity to get drafted and play. That's yeah. I've been saying that for a long time. You know, you want to you want to be the best, then you got to play with the best. Well, the best players in the world are are playing at the major universities. Mm-hmm. So, start mm-hmm. them early, get them in that work ethic, teach them to play so they can compete at that level and you'll see one, you know, come to fruition. Now, Jalen Green, I you know, he's a phenomenal superstar in fact you know i heard he he just signed in the in the g league i don't know if it's true or not but he signed for like half a million is that is that true Uh, i don't know about the salary but yeah he's he's with the new g league uh, ignite team together with guy soto okay so those are the the those are the two players that everybody's talking about that you know are going to be that no they're both filipino born right Jalen green though Jalen was born there Okay, yeah. so Jalen's gonna, he's gonna, <laughs> I don't know how to say this, but he's gonna get stuck with the tag that I get, which is he's the first Filipino American. But whenever I, on social media, sometimes <laughs> I get Filipinos saying, You were the first Filipino American, but you weren't Filipino born, so really you don't count. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then I, always, I always put, Okay. <laughs> No, that's my answer. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's so, not true. Come on. I don't get all. I don't get into that conversation. But for a lot of people, they want somebody Filipino born to make it, because that would be the first Filipino born, you know. And Kai Soto, he's Filipino born. Yes, yes. 
So yeah. that that might be, you know, the first one. I mean, you know, I was grateful that Jordan Clarkson finally made it because after 39 years of being the only one, it was like, okay, there's got to be another Filipino American <laughs> sometime that's going to be doing this. Um, so I was happy when he made it. And you, you know what? Let's be candid. In the next 10 years, you're going to have a lot more Filipinos playing in the NBA because the, the game is so global. The competition's much better. You got kids who have resources to get over here and get better. It, it, it's going to happen. It's just been a matter of time. That's right, all. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. We just got confirmation. Yeah, uh, Jalen Green is going to be paid five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to meeting him. I was supposed to meet him when he was here at Prolific. I was supposed to do an interview with. Uh, who was it? The newspaper, uh, the major new. It wasn't the Philippine News. It was the major newspaper in San Francisco. I was supposed to go up to pro pro Prolific Prep where he was playing, do an interview, you know, introduce myself to him, and that never came to fruition. But I'm looking forward to meeting him. I'm sure our, our paths across sometime. He's a very, very talented guy. Yeah. Yeah. He, seems, yeah, he can right. jump out of the gym. As a, you know, mm -hmm. seems to be a nice. Kid. Hey, can he shoot? Yeah. Not yeah, like not you. Yeah. Not, not like, like you, you though. <laughs> and the next time you, the next time you drop a line to him, you yeah. let him know, hey, there's somebody that can help you with the jump. <laughs> the, uh, the Which brings me to my next question. Ignite this. Yeah. Be, uh, right. Yeah. The, the new ahead, G League team. Is be, yeah. The new G League team, Ignite, which uh, Jalen and Kai are gonna play for, is gonna be based in Walnut Creek. I don't know how far away you are from from that 45 city. Forty-five minutes. So, so I'm yeah. going to make oh, okay. sure I'm yeah. over there. Thank there you, you Sid. Thank you for that information. Appreciate it. Which I'm brings me now to my next question. I'm going to go Raymond. meet both of them, and, and you'll, you'll hear about it. Okay, great. Yeah, which brings me to my next question. You do plan to come to the Philippines sometime in the second quarter of next year. Um, do you also plan on uh, propagating your basketball knowledge, or you, you want to get involved in basketball in the Philippines when you do come here uh, sometime in the spring of next year? You know what? I, I would love to do some kind of coaches clinic. I don't know. When I put it together, we'll put something together. I'd love to speak, you know, about the game and the way the game's changing and uh, uh, like to, you know, just talk a little bit about the way I see the game because I know I see the game so much differently than a lot of people. Mm -hmm. well, it's great because you've had different perspectives. You had the USNCAA, you had the NBA, you had the CBA, you had the European <laughs> League. So, you know, yeah. and, and then now you're watching it from the front row there at the at, at, uh, Golden State and all, and all of that. So right. definitely the, the vast wisdom that you've had, just, just, you know, sitting there watching and playing it as well, could be really beneficial for, for anybody that you're going to share, share your game with. But, you know, my, my, my question is, have you met Coach uh, Eric Spolstra? I have not met Coach Spolstra. You know who I met? Tab Baldwin. I okay. met uh -huh. uh, uh, Coach Cohn. Tim, Tim is a very good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. So I have actually, Tim and I sat down at the uh, the summer league in Vegas. Okay. You know, they didn't have it this year, but last year. And, you know, talked to him a little bit about PBA basketball and, and the direction of, of the game. And, you know, was sitting with us, Mike Malone. Okay. Oh, okay. We were all just talking. And I like, I like Mike. I think he does a great job. I think he's a, a really good coach. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was talking to Tim. I said, Tim, you know, I want to, you know, I want to explore. Is that, uh, does that mean I'm talking too long? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so 
I told Tim I wanted to explore talking to somebody about maybe coaching in the PBA. You know, I told him I, at that time I was I was talking about coming over and doing something like that. I think I would I would be a wonderful addition to there's PBA. A, there's a former Golden State Warriors player, Alton Lister. Uh, yes, exactly. Alton's a very he's, good friend he's of mine. He's here as an assistant coach. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Yeah. He's been here for, I think, he's been here nine for some years. Maybe, yeah, maybe nine, ten years. He's yeah, I know Alton very well. So uh, I should probably give him a call and see uh, yeah. see exactly what you have to do. Yeah, we were messaging uh, recently. Oh, I, I just wrote an article about him uh, for our website. So, Oh, good. Mm -hmm. Good man. He's really yeah. a good person. That's right. That's right. And an NBA veteran as well. Well, well, Sid, you know, we've been uh, we've been talking to Raymond. We, we've had so many revelations, great stories here. But we usually, usually usually like to close the show with Sid asking his trademark question to you, um, uh, Raymond. So, Sid, Sid, uh, am Sid, I ready for Sid? I don't know if I'm ready for Sid. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, uh, this is the standard fare. Your five favorite teammates of all time. Oh wow, that's a tough one. Yes. Yeah, uh, my five favorite teammates. Um, Got to be Marcus Johnson. Uh, Marcus Johnson, because, you know, who he was as a player, his work ethic to become the greatest player. Um, always there as a friend, always there as a player. Uh, Phil Smith, for who he was in my life. Um, God. Five favorites. Um, Jojo White. There you go. I was waiting for that. <laughs> Being who Jojo is. Um, boy, I'd have to say in when I was over in Italy, uh, Fulvio Policello and Rico Gilardi, uh, you know, one of the greatest centers and, and shooting guards in the history of Italian basketball. Mm -hmm. They were wonderful teammates you know made the transition you know I, once i learned i spoke italian and within 30 days i speak italian portuguese spanish, wow. spanish. Mm -hmm. so that's why i'm going to pick up tagalog before i get there because it's spanish <laughs> um yeah. but uh those were two of my favorites and uh you know what it'd have to be one of my can I, is it count high school? Can I count high school teammates? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, guy named Terry Vane, uh, at Midi high school, um, uh, went all around with me everywhere I went. And, uh, you know, he, he's one. So those are probably the top five. Um, I remember, I remember another teammate that I really love, uh, got a chance to room with him. I was trying to make a comeback in 1987. We roomed together. We had to go down to Santa Barbara during training camp. I was trying to retire in 1987, 88. George Carl called me because he'd known of me. Terry Teagle was going to Italy. He gave me a job and said, I have my job until Terry Teagle comes back, if he comes back. If he doesn't, it's mm -hmm. my job. If, if so, no, it's conditional upon Terry. Uh, but my roommate was Chris Mullen. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, wow. Great. Uh, that's a favorite teammate, man. Yeah, we got that guy went through a lot in his career and in his life to turn things around, right? Yeah, he has, and and you know I was you know there with him, and uh, but we became very close. He took my daughter under his wing. 
he had me run his basketball camps because he trusted me. Uh, so I ran all of his basketball camps. He was really close. Just saw him. I told welcomed him back to uh, Golden State. He's working with us again mm -hmm. at Golden State. So, uh, yeah, I, he's got to be in that group. Yes. I'm sure you had fun talking with him because he's, he's a damn smart player, that guy. I'm telling you what. I always tell people, people say, well, I'm not quick enough. I don't jump high enough. I said, name <laughs> the one player that didn't jump high enough, wasn't quicker than probably in most of the people he played against, but was one of the most prolific scorers ever in the history of this game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Chris, name, I bring him up right away. I said, his IQ, his IQ alone made him great. He didn't need to be faster than anybody. He didn't need to be quicker than anybody. I, him coming off screens and doing some of these things is what allowed him to be one of the greatest offensive scorers in the game. I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. All right, Raymond, we, we are running over time. I know you still got a lot of stuff to, to, <laughs> to still do. Um, one more message before we let you go. I mean, we don't want to let you go. We want to have an eternity of basketball with you. That was nice. That was smooth. <laughs> I find that for like a week. No, but, but you have a message that you want to share to everybody about your journey and, and, and any message that you want before we let you go. Well, the only message I think I would have is that, you know, along your journey, you're going to meet a lot of people and don't hold back whatever knowledge or wisdom or experiences you have, because that may be the exact thing that somebody needs to hear to make them understand that all things are possible. You know, Mark 9, 23, all things are possible. He who believes. And, you know, we need to right now in this day an age with this unprecedented time of the pandemic and things, we just need to be kind, be kind and love, you know, one another to a place where we're not judgmental, that we respect all people. And uh, my word is, you know, God has given you a gift. Don't sit on it. Go give it to somebody else. And, uh, you know, God bless you. And, and, and thank you for taking the time. And I'm glad I've Hopefully that the Filipino people, I hope I've made them proud. Mm -hmm. uh, I know I've made my mom and dad proud. And I know I've made a lot of my family and friends proud of, of my journey and exactly what I'm doing and giving back to people. So serve. You know, no greater gift than serving someone else who can never repay you. Amen. That's that's amazing. It's a great message right there. So that, of course, guys, is uh, Raymond Townsend. Uh, gentlemen, do you still have anything else before we, we close the show? I'm I'm perfectly fine. Okay. I'm trying to I'm trying to keep in all those. Stories I know. I know. <laughs> this, is, this has been one of the best episodes that we've had. Thank you for being candid. I'm still a fun manong. I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. a little life to me. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> And we will see you in spring of next year when you come over to the Philippines. At mm -hmm. this point, since we do have a guest who used to play in the NBA, you know, we're going to bring up another um, uh, item up for auction. Now, Raymond, just to let you know, I'm, I'm helping out, trying to help out some of our uh, uh, brothers and sisters who have not worked because of uh, sports being stopped in the Philippines because of a pandemic. So we did a little bit of an auction to help out our brothers and sisters over here uh, so that they can, you know, survive until we get sports back. Um, I, I posted this on my Facebook page the other day. I have just obtained a pair of shoes worn by one of the 25 greatest PBA players of all time that, has, that happens to be signed by one of the 50 greatest NBA players of all time. And Bianca, can we show that photograph that I, I shared with you? 
uh, just to show that there's proof of, uh, of this happening right here. There it is. That is Giorgio Lastimosa. Well, he's been a guest on our show. And yep. his shoes are being signed by one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history. That is Scotty Pippen signing oh, those shoes. Pip. Wow. Yeah, big Pip. And, I, and those shoes, all right, Bianca, we're done with the photo. And those shoes happen to be with me right now. So this oh, is the next wow. item up for bids. The shoes that Giorgio Lastimosa wore in 2012 during that NBA, uh, encounter, NBA game uh, with the Legends. Of course, they were all retired already at the time. This is the 2012 game. So Giorgio Lastimosa gave me this gift uh, last uh, Sunday, and he said, uh, if this can help out in your auction, go ahead and do it. So these are the Scotty Pippen signed shoes that were worn by Giorgio Lastimosa in that 2012 game. And I will be announcing the mechanics of this uh, auction, but this is a definite collector's item, ladies and gentlemen. These are Giorgio Lastimosa shoes signed by Scotty Pippen. I don't think we'll need authentication for this because we do have that photo. So right. there it is, Raymond. Yeah, well, your boy, Scotty Pippen. Yeah. That's wonderful. So before we go, you know, I just. What I, I would love to do something ahead. for you. Uh, Noel, after this yeah. is over, send me an email. I'd like to maybe get one of my original uniforms. Oh, wow. Off, you know, oh, wow. Golden State uh, wow. Warriors, one of my originals. Oh, so wow. Get, get that okay. and, and, you know, I might bid for that. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's amazing. Well, that, that's sorry, Ray, that just made me a little emotional right now. Thank you for your generosity and parting with a part of your history for, for this cause. And, and again, Raymond, thank you very much for sharing the time with us. I know how busy you are, even, it is, uh, even if the pandemic is ongoing. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing your stories and time with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for all your kindness. And, and, Raymond, right. and Raymond, all these uh, all these guys that you talked about, Marcus Johnson, and all these these great players, and, and your NBA teammates, all of that, you know, we'd 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 love to uh, to hear more about them, you know. And and if there's a second time, you can come on the show, and we'll just talk about players you played with and against, and all of that. Then we'd love to have you back. Would love maybe to, Raymond. Yeah, maybe Raymond, you can help us do something better. Maybe we can get some of your old friends. On this show, you mean you, you spoke? You spoke about guys like Marcus Johnson, Clifford Ray, Jamal Wilkes. I mean, if you have stories to tell, pretty much, I'm sure they pretty much have stories to tell as well. Well, I don't want them to tell my secrets. <laughs> 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 you know, when I found out how I was with with Brad Holland and Roy Hamilton, I, I don't know if I want that to get out. So, I didn't know. So we're going to blow out. I don't know. They, they know a lot about how I was as a player. I don't know. We will tell them uh, you can't I, talk about, can't talk about they'd, they'd love to be on your show. I know Marcus would do it in a minute, you know, some of those guys. Wow. All right. All right. I'll bring it up yeah. next time. I talk to Marcus at least once yeah. a month. Throw them our way. Yeah. All right. Good. Well, we may probably okay. take you up on that. Even Steve Kerr would be somebody that would be really, really great to talk to. I mean, that would be an honor for all of us. But the honor right now of speaking to Raymond Townsend has come to an end. We, we, our show is called An Eternity of Basketball, but unfortunately, we do not have an eternity to spend with Raymond Townsend. Uh, Raymond, it's been great. And again, this, uh, our show has to come to an end, unfortunately. But of course, our show continues this coming Tuesday when we bring it back local and go back to the PBA with one of the original big guards in the history of the league. And we are talking about uh, Joel Banal, who will be our special guest this coming Tuesday on an eternity of basketball. And once again, that's all the time we have for you for our show in AEOB. For my co-hosts, 
Sid Ventura, and Attorney Charlie Kuna. And of course, thank you very much to the great Raymond Townsend. My name is Noel Zarate. We will see you all again on Tuesday. This has been an eternity of basketball. Paalam, guys. That concludes this episode of An Eternity of Basketball. As a reminder for this show and others like it and projects like it, go to globallyballin.com as well as follow Globally Ballin on all social media, including facebook.com slash globallyballin, Twitter at globallyballin, and Instagram. You can also follow this show directly at An Eternity of Basketball on Instagram or facebook.com slash an eternity of basketball. Thank you, and make sure to catch next week's episode.